Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, world, to Atwood Unleashed 89, co hosted with Stephen Knight. And we have got a slew of guests lined up to you, ranging from weed dealers to people who believe the moon landings were fake. <laughs> All right. So, first 15 minutes. Me and Stephen are going to shoot the shit and talk about who's coming on and discuss some of the trending topics and the polls we put out this week on the YouTube community wall. First guest, six to seven, Tim McBride, former marijuana smuggler, pot hauler, living on the edge of the Florida Everglades. From 79 to 89, he ran Southern Waters and the Caribbean with a band of modern-day pirates known by locals as saltwater cowboys. Night after night, he offloaded up to 20 tons at a time from any vessel that could make the trip from South America. Like Mexico does now, Columbus supplied 42% of the green consumed in the U.S. in 1984. The major percentage of this traffic was controlled by Tim's crew, crews working with small crews and several large Colombian organizations. And then Stephen's got the next guest. Yeah, for all, so from 7 to 7.30, we hope to have this guest for you last week, but we had a few issues. With, well, he had a few issues with his internet, but a best-selling author and former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Dr. Everett Piper, will be joining us. Uh, <laughs> Piper served as a president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University for a total of 17 years, during which he led uh, his school from relative obscurity to a position of national recognition and influence. Uh, Piper presently serves as a contributing columnist for the Washington Times. Uh, his commentary on religion, education, leadership, and politics is featured in local and national uh, media outlets. So interesting fellow. Uh, and then following up from that at 7.30 to 8, I'll be speaking to Len Burr, MD. Uh, Leonid Len Burr received his MD degree in the former USSR, uh, where he specialized and practiced as an endocrinologist. Oh, I can never say that word. Endocrinologist. I know it relates to hormones, but I can't say the word. Um, now he's a U.S. citizen. Uh, Len is one of the few U.S. civilians to ever officially be diagnosed with Havana syndrome. Uh, Havana syndrome is an alleged set of medical symptoms with unknown causes experienced mostly abroad by U.S. government officials and military personnel. And I believe we're switching over to Patreon, aren't we, Sean? Yeah, so we'll go on to Patreon. We finish on YouTube at 8 UK time. And then we commence on Patreon at 8.10 and Stephen's going to be picking up the Marilyn Mann case. Yeah, we'll be revisiting the Marilyn Manson case with North Carolina attorney Steve from uh, uh, from the Southern Law YouTube channel and fellow YouTuber Eric Hunley. Uh, I don't know if many of you saw yesterday, news broke that uh, Marilyn Manson is being sued for sexual assault of a minor. Uh, and this comes less than a week after his settlement with the Game of Thrones actress Esme Bianco. Uh, and then... Following up from that, I'll be speaking to cult, cult survivor Rachel Vaughan. Uh, she'll be joining us from Australia. Uh, Rachel's original podcast with us uh, had to be taken down due to algorithmic constraints of YouTube. Uh, Rachel has a tragic story and is still fighting for justice. Uh, so tonight she'll be providing us evidence on the Edwardstown tunnels that she was transported in as a child during her many abductions. And then, doo -doo -doo -doo, last guest of the night, Bart Sibrel, 
Award-winning filmmaker, writer, investigative journalist who's been producing TV and docs for 30 plus years. Bart will be chatting us about why he thinks the moon landings were faked. Some of you may know Bart from the viral videos of him asking Neil Armstrong to swear on the Bible that he landed on the moon and for being punched by Buzz Aldrin after asking him if he faked the moon landing in 1969. Wow. So that is the full. <laughs> Have you seen him get punched? I I've had it on loop uh, in the past. Yeah, I've seen it. I don't condone violence uh, for speech. However, it was amusing. <laughs> now let's look at the polls that we've had up in the last week. We put up a poll asking people, "Do you believe in aliens?" So if you guys saw our podcast with James Fox on aliens and extraterrestrial life and proof of, yes, said 71%, no, said 25%, over 4%. Where do you lie on that, Stephen? I would love nothing more than to find the existence of extraterrestrials before I, I shuffle off uh, this planet. I'm fairly open to the idea of extraterrestrial life out there. I'm just not convinced they've ever visited and I'm certainly not convinced they visited to dick around with some guy's crops or probe a redneck. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, fairly skeptical uh, of them uh, claims, but I'd, I'd like to be proven wrong. I'd like I'd like aliens to exist very much. Our other poll was Trump wants to end an exclusivity deal with Truth Social and get back on Twitter. Rolling Stone reported. We've got 36% ecstatic, 5% devastated, and 57% couldn't care less. <laughs> I mean, regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, and I, I have some opinions, he does send the news media into a complete meltdown when he tweets. And I, I just, it's, it's been nice not to have to deal with the, the noise of it all, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think when he was on Twitter there, he was just causing waves all over the world and it, it did create quite a lot of news stories for us to jump on. So, there were a lot of people who were probably put out of a job when Donald Trump was banned from Twitter because that was their sole purpose <laughs> in life to write and report on his tweet, uh, Twitter feed. It, it, it did. It did create a whole cottage industry around it. Sure. Right, so the other news stories of the week, let me have a look. We've got Meghan Markle is toxic. Done. That's all we need to know. <laughs> Put a one in the chat if you think Meghan Markle is toxic. Put a two in the chat if you don't mind Meghan Markle. Let's see where that goes. And you put a three if you couldn't care less. Let's see where they go with that. I mean, we, we did recently have lots of viral videos. With Samantha Markle, Meghan Markle's sister. And if you guys have saw the Samantha Markle interview, it's, it's, it's got been the most viewed on the channel in the last few weeks. Ones, ones. Maria's a one. Introspection is a one. Winston is a three. Couldn't care less. Jason is a one. Imogen is a three. Right. And then this Marilyn Manson news then. Were you ever a Marilyn Manson fan, Stephen? I did bop along to such classics as The Dope Show, Beautiful People, Nobodies, when I was uh, a teenager. Um, I went through a small 
new metal phase. Uh, but I don't think he's made anything of merit in the last 20 years, to be fair to him. Seems like he's in a lot more trouble today, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, these cases are historic. And is the the statute of limitations has been lifted? Is that how that's, this has come about? Yeah, apparently a governor in the state of New York has introduced some new legislation, which means uh, alleged victims of historic sexual abuse can come forward for a sort of a limited window, regardless of when the alleged crimes were supposed to have taken place. So, these, so I mean, these were alleged to have happened in 1995, I believe. The, um, the claimant was uh, saying she was 16 at the time of these alleged attacks. So this is this is going going to go through the court system, and it's not it's not looking great for Marilyn Manson, and it's, it's difficult to know what to make of it all. Um, I mean, what can you say? I think you, you kind of have to just wait and see what evidence is presented before you can make a, a truly informed opinion on it. Lawsuit was filed in Long Island, New York on Monday. He was accused of childhood and adult beep, 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 beep. The suit alleged Manson first targeted the unnamed plaintiff when she was 16 in 1995, came less than a week after the singer, whose real name is Brian Warner, reached a settlement with the actor Esme Bianco, who sued him in April 21, alleging beep, beep, beep. That suit came amid multiple allegations of beep from other women, prominently including the actor Evan Rachel Wood. Manson, through his lawyer, was vehemently denied any and all claims. He also sued Wood for defamation, emotional distress, and other claims. He has not immediately commented on the new suit, which was filed under the New York Adult Survivors Act, signed by the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, last May. The act gives survivors a window of time in which to sue, regardless of when the crime allegedly occurred. Without the act, the claims would be barred from being brought forth by filing deadlines known as statute of limitations. The writer, E. Jean Carroll, sued Trump under the act, um, which he has denied. The plaintiff in the new suit against Manson is described as an adult female residing in Maryland, born in 1979. The suit alleges that Manson first targeted her in 1995 when she was 16, using his role, status, and power as an adult and performer in the music industry to gain access to, groom, manipulate, and exploit her, resulting in beep, beep incidents. Then in 1999, when plaintiff was approximately 19 years old, defendant Warner perpetuated his grooming, manipulation, exploitation, and beep of plaintiff over the course of approximately four weeks. The suit names Nothing Records and its distributor, Interscope Music Publishing, as co-defendants that were allegedly aware of Manson's practicing of beep and aided and abetted such behavior the suit says his beep obsessions and violent behaviors were not only known by defendants interscope and nothing records but they were celebrated and promoted for the collective financial gain one of the plaintiff's attorneys karen barth menzies said the suit was an indictment of the music industry for maintaining a culture that celebrates protects and enables predators interscope and universal music um, a parent company to now defunct nothing label did not immediately comment. The suit says the plaintiff suffered severe emotional, physical, and psychological distress, shame, guilt, economic loss, economic capacity, and emotional loss, humiliation, shame, and horror that she will continue to suffer for the rest of her life. It seeks unspecified damages, costs, and an order enjoining defendants from future unlawful business practices, including what not limited to exposing minors and vulnerable adults to exploitation. 
another attorney for the plaintiff, Jeff Anderson, who has represented victims. When the Catholic Church said, for too long, music industry predators have hidden in plain sight, believing they are above the law. Today we are demanding Warner face retribution so he knows he will no longer escape his day in court. This is his day of reckoning. <laughs> wow. Sounds, yeah, it's, uh, hot water, I think is the expression. Right, so if you're watching this, put a one in the chat. If you think that Marilyn Manson is guilty of these heinous crimes, put a two in the chat. If you think he's just getting hit up so they can make payouts um, from him and put a three if you couldn't go less. And I apologize for my sniveling. I had a cold, just coming off a cold this week. Um, the first guest should be coming in shortly. Let's have a look. We've got Tim McBride coming in in a couple of minutes. Any new stories that have stood out to you this week, Stephen? I've been taking great delight watching the downfall of Nicola Sturgeon when asked some very simple but effective questions regarding gender ideology and where we incarcerate transgender rapists um, in prisons. I don't know if you've caught much of that yourself. Maybe I should have said bleep there. I'm still not quite, saw, I, quite down with the right. it's, it's all right, just if we can minimise it. Um, <laughs> I saw that case where the guy committed that heinous act that you described, converted to a woman, and then got sent to a woman's prison. Yeah, and there's a number of... I mean, it's not just this one individual. There is a number of cases where... Uh, this has happened. Women have been housed with biological men who are in there for either violent crimes or sexual crimes. It's a, it's a great organization that you it's worth checking out called Keep Prison Single Sex. They do a lot of campaigning on this issue purely from the compassionate grounds that, you know, incarcerated women are amongst the most vulnerable uh, people on planet Earth, really. And they just stand up for their rights and then give them a voice on an issue that they don't typically have a, a voice for. So it's, it comes from a place of compassion. I appreciate there's a lot of bigotry thrown in in this uh, argument, but the, these people specifically are, are doing it from a, a sort of empathetic perspective. Right. Let me just have a look at those poll results then. We've got twos, twos, and threes couple of ones. All right, we'll just do one more poll then. Should trans um, who were formerly men who became women or are transitioning, should they go to women's prisons, put a one? Should they go to men's prisons, put a two? I know in Arizona it was you You go where, if you're born with a man part, you're going to go where the man parts are housed. <laughs> yeah so the, the men go with the men essentially uh yes yeah. two's coming in on this one. Oh, matthew steeples has put something we had a good three days two or three days with matthew steeples on the south coast recently nicholas sturgeon is a shocking misery and inept yeah it looks like all twos on that one sturgeon has lost the plot this could sink her because unfortunately for her, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the Scottish and British public can tell you what a man or a woman is and easily tell you what the dangers are of uh, getting that confused when it comes to the prison system. So uh, she's she's got a big hole to dig herself out of. Right. It's time to bring the first guest in. So I shall see you soon, my friend. See you soon. Have a good chat. Cheers. Right. Welcome, Tim. How are you doing, my friend? Hello, Sean. I'm doing great, man. You're Thank down you for in having Florida. me. You're still down in Florida? Yes, sir, I am. I'm in, uh, I think we're pushing about 82 degrees here this morning. 
All right. Well, wow. it's one o'clock. Sorry. It's, it's, it's quite cold in London. So the viewers, you know, I'm really excited about your story. It's right up my street, all this stuff. Can you just tell the viewers a little bit about you before we go over it more slowly? Um, yeah, actually, uh, of course, my name is Tim McBride. My uh, nickname uh, that was given to me back in my earlier years is Saltwater Cowboy, which I have right there, actually. And it's also the name of the book that I've written, Saltwater Cowboy, The Rise and Fall of, a, of an Empire. And it's actually a firsthand telling and accounting, and it's not a... Um, you know, a boring statistical romp through the war on, you know, the war on uh, weed and, you know, other drugs and, and such. It's more of a firsthand telling of me sitting there taking you through my experience, you know, with this industry growing up. Uh, and growing up, I was, you know, there was never anything ever dysfunctional, you know, with the family group and the way I grew up that, you know, that drove me to, to become an outlaw. It's just, you know, my life turned out to be a bit of a, a Forrest Gump of a tripping over one thing into the next. And there I was, you know. <laughs> so, so what was it like for you before you got involved in the green? Uh, just life is, life is, you know, usual for a, you know, a young, uh, late, late teens, early twenties guy. I was, uh, uh, when I was 19, 1920, uh, I had, um, the fortunate, uh, um, opportunity to work for a, uh, one of the uh, what was called the Rat Pack back in the early days of uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and as such I had a job working for Sammy Davis Jr. in Hollywood with my cousin Hogan who drove his tour bus uh, another story for another time but uh, I got you know the Hollywood thing just kind of bubble bursted for me once I understood how it all worked and you know the you know television you know was so unreal to me you know at that point I headed back to uh, back home where um, I had done four years in high school in Southern Wisconsin, uh, um, having moved there as my father was uh, finishing up with the 82nd Airborne in North Carolina uh, in the Army, and he went and took a sales position. My back in Wisconsin after LA, and my next door neighbor called me, at, uh, my best friend, and said, "Hey, I'm moving to Florida tomorrow. I'm going to go work on a fishing boat down in Florida." And my sister and brother-in-law were in the only fish house on the island, and his brother-in-law was actually one of the natives, you know, that lived there all his life. So he said, you want to go? <laughs> I said, I didn't Ooh. give it a second thought, man. I thought, Heck yeah, I packed all my stuff in my Cobra and my Mustang. And, you know, off late, two days later, we ended up on the very dead end of highway 29 on this little 129 acre Island in paradise <laughs> called Chukalowski. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, didn't go down there with any aspirations of getting involved in anything that I wound up getting involved in. I just went down there as, you know, because it was another opportunity, something that I didn't want to pass up. And I'd always been that type of person whereby if something came along and it sounded good to me, rather than kick myself in the butt later on saying, I wish I'd have done that. I just did it, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, one thing led to another, and here I am. I'm helping my uh, his sister and brother-in-law build their new home while he's getting a job on the boat working <clears throat> by what I mean, stone crab fishing. And stone crabs are a very um, uh, lucrative business, and it's also a delicacy that found only in these southern waters, and they're sold all around the world, you know, at, at astronomical prices. But um, uh, this, this particular boat had a, uh, has a captain and two crew a first mate and a second mate that work on the stern, pulling these stone crab traps every day. So I was working building this house and 
the captain of the boat that my buddy had gotten the job working on decided he wanted to get back into the, you know, the weed hauling business. <laughs> and he didn't trust the guy that was on there with my, my buddy, Mark. He was, this guy was from Michigan and captain Billy really didn't know this guy at all or anything about him, but they knew us. They knew where we were from. They knew where we came from, where we grew up, you know, and all about us. So there was no, you know, subterfuge as far as law enforcement intrusion on our part. And everybody knew that. So we were accepted right into the family and the uh, captain decided that he needed a new guy and it might as well be me. So they worked this guy, you know, hard for about a week and, and he wound up quitting because, you know, I mean, pulling stone crabs is, uh, I mean, it'll make a man out of you. I mean, in a hurry. And most guys usually do it one, maybe two seasons and they quit because it's just such, you know, backbreaking work. Um, so I said, okay, they got me on board and they, in, and they imparted the story, you know, the, the procedure about how it works. You get on the boat early in the morning, you know, say three, four o'clock in the morning, depending on where you have to go, because we've got 600 traps to pull a day. We have 6,000 of these things and they're probably 26 inches by 27 inches by, by about 28 inches tall. So they're you know, a bit rectangular and tall, but the bottom six inches of the trap is concrete. So when you push it back into the water, it lands flat on the bottom like it should. So the crabs can crawl through the funnel on top. Well, as I'm pulling my trap, my neck, the guy next to me is pushing his. I clear mine. I bait it. I clean it. I fix it. I repair it, whatever I need to do while he pulls his. And when he pulls his, I push mine back over. So we always leave one where we take one and, and 300 traps, one direction for about 17 to 20 miles. Then we stop and have lunch, skip over about 50, 75 yards and pull back 300 the other way. So we're not twice as far away from where we started. This is how it was imparted to me and how the work was done. So I said, yeah, okay. You know, you know, no problem. I'm in. So, you know, I, Got on the boat about three o'clock that next morning and the, the bunks that we sleep in are in the wheelhouse. As soon as we cast off, um, you know, we can go right in the bunk because we've got several hours, you know, to get to where we need to be, where these traps are. So we can, you know, when it just as soon as it becomes light out, we can pull that first trap. And I mean, we got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of work to do on this boat. And I get out there and, you know, I wake up and the sun's up and I'm thinking, well, you know, I'll in my mind on my inner monologue i'm going well they said we were starting before the sun get up i mean you know so i leaned over and i looked down the bunk and there's captain billy sitting right there in his chair and he's he's got this big grin on his face at me he goes timmy we're not gonna you know we're not gonna pull traps today buddy he says we're gonna hang out here all day and party and you know and, and just swim and goof off until this you know later on this afternoon we're gonna unload a uh a weed boat from columbia <laughs> Tim, Ash has asked me to remind you to say green and white instead of the other words. Green, yeah, the green, yeah, to pick up a load of green. green. And I said, okay, man, you know, um, because they knew me and it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing for them because they knew I'd be okay with it. So my first time ever working on this boat, I didn't see a stone crab trap. I saw 15 tons of of green, 30,000 pounds of green is what we put on our boat and brought it in that night. Now, when we bring it in, we pull up to the shoreline and kill our engines. And then from the from the 10,000 islands, if you've ever seen an overview, if you just Google 
uh, 10,000 Islands, Everglades. It shows you a nice overview of this wonderfully beautiful labyrinth of islands, literally 10,000 of them that Mother Nature saw fit to build, you know, right in our backyard. And this is where we play. We run these islands and back and forth and everywhere. And we get in there, you're not catching us. You're not finding us. There's no way. So all these little boats would come out from the islands, about two guys on each boat. And these are shallow drafting boats, usually have two twin 235 Evinrude outboard motors on them. And they can go as long as that prop can go through the water, that boat will go through the water. And they're putting, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40, um, you know, 70 pound bricks of green on each boat. And they're making trips back and forth through a pass that we've created on our own to one of our or two of our buddies houses on the islands that we've literally taken all the furniture out of and start stacking the houses full from the back to the front. And we go offshore and clean up and, you know, that's our jobs over with. So the next morning we, you know, we pull a few traps and come in with a little bit of catch. And that next evening, you know, we're hanging out and around and I get up and I get ready to go. I get on the boat again at like three 30 that again that next morning. And I wake up and one more time, the sun's up. Now this is my second day working on this crab boat. And I didn't see even a crab trap the second day. We went off and got 22 tons of green that next night. <laughs> and so my first two nights working on this boat, we moved all these, you know, these tons of green into the United States through Everglades in this little tiny island. And I got paid $5,000 for each night. That was what considered rookie pay because the captain was kind of, you know, testing us out. Once he understood he had a crew that was willing and able to do the work, now I'm getting paid according to the size of the loads. And the loads from that point started getting bigger. They went from 22 tons to 30 tons to 40 tons. There's a chapter in my book where I wrote 28 nights in a row our crews worked to the tune of 1.6 million pounds of green went across that little island into Miami. And this is the story that I talk about. 40, almost 40 years and three generations of, of, uh, of, of, of green haulers is what we well, you call make, them. You, you, make it sound so, you make it sound so easy, Tim. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, well, there was, you know, um, in the book, you know, it's written in in my voice. You know, it's written with under what's called the Chicago Manual of Style, which is, you know, uh, a lot more grammatically forgiving than the English style or the American style of literature or writing. And it allowed me to tell the story in my voice. So there's a lot of there's a bit of there's a lot of joviality because I'm that kind of guy, you know, plus we're a bunch of kids. You know, I mean, there's a town, a little town of just under 500 people and half of the population of the town was involved in doing this simply because if we do 22 tons and 30 tons and then at, at maybe 40 tons, it won't be just our one boat. It might be two or three other boats going along with us to bring the entire load in. You can only work guys maybe two or three nights and then or, or you kill them. So we have to take a couple of days off and then a couple of the other boats in town and crews take over. I mean, the whole town was doing this and we we're actually spreading the work around. Okay. Jimmy, you take off. Teddy, you take off. Tommy, you take off and let these guys work tonight. And then tomorrow night or the next night, then you guys can come back in again. You know, so everybody was getting a piece of this thing. And um, it was just those size of loads that we were involved in working with as kids. That's all we knew, you know, 
that's all we knew as kids, you know, 20, 30 ton loads. It was just like, it was what we expected, but um, we were never afraid of it. I was never afraid of it. Neither were any of the guys that I worked with, because, you know, when you think about it uh, in all reality, first of all, the reason why us younger kids are doing all the work is because the grownups aren't out there humping these 70 and 80 pound bales of green, you know, and moving them 800 to a thousand of them twice a night. <laughs> They're not doing this, man. The younger kids are doing this. We're all breaking our backs, you know, but like I said, after that night, now my job, now my work is getting, I'm getting paid according to the size of the loads and we're working two and three and sometimes four nights a week now. And I'm averaging anywhere between 50 and $75,000 a night. And I'm earning $150,000, a week. And I just turned 21 years old. You know, that's just how, that's just how I grew, that's how I grew up. You know, where was the money going? Um, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, that's another, I mean, this, this is a, this is a story that that's really hard to tell in an hour. You know, obviously. Yeah. So, um, I'll 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 give you the condensed version if if I can. You know, we were taught as kids, you know, as as youngsters that we were, um, by the older generations. Now, I'm talking. I was considered by the United States government to be what would they called a third generation uh, green smuggler, and what that meant was my uncles and dads and fathers and older cousins of myself and the people that I grew up with, they were the second generation. The first generation were their uncles and fathers and our grandpas and everybody that grew up with them. So this goes down three generations um, and nearly 40 years of running the, the these Southern waters here around Florida in the, in the archipelago of the Keys and the Caribbean with literally with impunity because we were bringing in these enormous amounts into a little tiny 129 acre island in Everglades and who would have ever had a clue, you know, but the, uh, the most interesting thing about it was um, them were be the older, the adults in, in, in answer to your question, were always concerned about the money spending because if you got stupid and started buying, you know, Porsches and you know building crazy homes or just you know stupid things then you stuck out then you just didn't work anymore that was the end of it you just I mean you're just done you're, you're a liability now you're not an asset so they were very good at instructing us on ways of how to spend money and not have anything to show for it and then after a while it became a game of us trying to figure out ways of how to spend all this cash and not have anything to show for it we were doing some outrageous things man <laughs> I mean just I think the most amount of money we could get rid of at any one time would be, for instance, myself and four of my buddies went to South Beach. We went from Miami to South Beach in a four-day weekend. We each took $200,000 a piece. We took a million dollars between us with the sole intention of taking on the bar tab of every club we went into. And, and with the, the other sole purpose was to try to come home with just enough money for gas. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get rid of the cash, you know, I mean, just get rid of it. Cause I mean, mm -hmm. I was, you know, the way it works is we bring a load in and this is the way I worked when I started taking over the cruise. We'll handle two stones at one in one toss here. When I started taking over the cruise, I learned that if I'm bringing in your load and you owe me $25 million and my crew for having brought that in, um, which is usually 
you know, I charge $175 a pound and I can go to any corner of the Caribbean where there's green being grown and I can buy it for you and I can buy as much as you want because those, those connections were inherited to me by the other generations who they worked with as families themselves. So these were all families and generational families. This were not cartels. You know, never once in my growing up in all of those years did I ever see a gun, ever, never. And that kind of makes sense to me in retrospect, because I'm thinking what parent in their right mind would put their children out there unloading freighters offshore from boats from all of the corner of the Caribbean if they thought it was dangerous? Well, it wasn't. So that's why as kids were put to work out there. People have to understand and realize that at that level of, of, of where we were working, there is no violence. There, ha there, there, there doesn't need to be. If I can go anywhere in the Caribbean and for $10 a pound buy you all the green that you want, and by the time I get it into United States waters, it becomes anywhere between $500 and $750 a pound, I just turn, say if I put $300,000 and I bought 30,000 pounds of green, and I get it to you within eight days, which is typically the voyage between, you know, from Columbia to South Florida, you know, and anywhere else in the you know, Caribbean, sometimes shorter than that, I can turn that $300,000 into 15 million. Minus my fee for a job that size, which is around 5 million. And you just made $10 million in eight days off of $300,000. And do you think these guys are shooting at me? <laughs> Man, they can't give me money fast enough to go back. You know? Wow. You know, go back, go back, go back, go back. So I wound up flying down to Columbia my first job ever doing this on my own. And it was very serendipitous and a very particular sequence of events needed to take place, you know, throughout this entire story for me to be able to even be sitting here talking to you because uh, of what you wrote as the introduction to the story, 160 years mandatory to life. Well, that's exactly what they slapped on me when they finally caught me, you know, but that's, you know, I mean, you have to read the book really. I don't know. I know I have some friends in the UK that have gotten the book. Um, I don't know if it's it, it's being authored offered in France and Italy and Spain and you know the Netherlands and other places through uh, Amazon. I know this much, but um, all this is explained to you in the book, you know about how I how I managed to take over and it was very, you know, just being the 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 right person in the right place at the right time is exactly how this happened for me, um, and um, you know so the spending part of it we got past. The, the mechanics of it is, is simply a boat like ours. And I've sent you, uh, you know, I've sent um, some pictures along to Ash that you might go ahead and integrate at some point. Um, a picture of the boat that we used that, that has literally hauled millions of pounds of green into the United States with a picture of me and my partner on the back of the boat. Um, and how ultimately after two federal operations in 1983 and then again in 1984 that involved over 250 plus federal agents from every branch of law enforcement across the country came down onto that little little town and, and started to affect arrests. Well, the intelligence was so good of the first and second generations because they had congressmen and senators and, and judges on their payrolls. I mean, these people were, you know, they were very clever at what they did. And it was a bit of a failure because they knew through the intelligence two weeks before that operation happened that they were coming. So when they showed up, it was like, a, you know, there was nobody around, you know, it was a big flop. So they, a year to the day, just about, he came again, Operation Everglades 2. 250 plus federal agents, again, from every branch of law enforcement descended on that little town. And this time the growing up said, oh, okay. They threw their hands up in the air and said, oh, well, they're, 
you know, they're not going to stop. So they, they all sat out on the front porches at two in the morning, smoking cigarettes, waiting for the show to start. You know? <laughs> and here they came, you know, and the second time around in 1984, Life magazine was one of the reporting, you know, magazines that came to the island. And there were more, actually more reporters. It was, it was written. There were more reporters on the island than there were people there to be arrested. <laughs> and it was like a Keystone Cop sort of an affair because there's no stoplights on the island. It's just a couple of stop signs. I mean, it's it's trailers mostly because I mean we're just we're just fishermen. We're just regular ordinary old people, you know. Nothing extraordinary. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so they had gotten the, most of the key players, the older adults, the visible people that were, you know, working us kids. And, you know, and, and they had no idea the scope and the magnitude of, of which it was they were getting involved in the government. Did They they were really absolutely clueless. So they got a hold of the, you know, the main people, in particular, the five Daniels brothers, whose kids I grew up with. Now they're standing in front of the magistrate in Miami and they're getting their, you know, they're being arraigned or, and, um, or they're being sentenced and the judge is reading out their list of seizures, just to give you a, a bit of an example of what these guys were involved in and how I took and, and what I wound up taking over. They discovered a, uh, Antilles, a Netherlands Antilles holding company in the Caribbean worth about $8 million in, in an untold number of properties here in the United States. They had timeshares, hotels, motels, houses, um, time, you know, rental apartments. They had houses, cars, trucks, boats, airplanes. And and Daryl, one of the brothers, had owned several airplanes that he never had a license to fly, and he just had the money to buy them and and to pay a guy to show him how to fly the airplane. <laughs> you know, all these seizures. Plus, they seized five hundred and eighty thousand pounds of green. Now, who in the world has over a half a million pounds of green laying around? Well. We do, <laughs> you know, so the judge literally, and I'm reading from the youngest brother, Craig of the five brothers. He's my still today. I mean, they're all my dear friends, but Craig, the youngest brother is my dearest friend. We talk almost, you know, a couple times a, a month, even uh, to this day. And he's telling me, and I'm reading from the transcripts, this magistrate is looking at all five brothers lined up in front of him. And he says that, you know, uh, you know, he tells them all and he addresses me, he says, you know, gentlemen, he says, I have absolutely no idea how to sentence people like you. <laughs> he says, I have never in my life come across anything such as this. And, you know, at that time, the judges and the magistrates had discretion, uh, or had discretionary measures that they could use by which to sentence you. They could take into account a lot of different things. You know, you've never been involved in a crime. You've never been arrested. You have a family, blah, 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 all that crap. Well, when it came to Craig, the youngest, he, this is his second time for this kind of thing. And the judge warned him twice. He says, you know, this is your second time, Mr. Daniels. He goes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I understand. So the first, the four brothers, magistrate shuffling through his papers, the four brothers, and he, he looks over at him. He goes, 36 months. 36 months <laughs> from flooding North America with green, right? So they come to Craig, and the guy's pointing at Craig and goes, Okay, Mr. Daniels, well, I'm going to remind you one more time. He says, This is your second time around. Yes, sir. He's very humble. Yes, sir. And the judge, again, you know, you kind of hear the papers rustling, and the judge kind of looks over at me, takes his glasses off one more time. He says, You know what? I cannot stress the fact, you know, the simple fact that I have, once again, I'm no idea what to do with a guy like you, you know, 
And he says, and he looks him straight in the eye. And this is the funny part. And he says, and he asks Craig himself, he says, Craig, he says, Mr. Daniels, does five years sound like a long time to you? (laughs) Oh yes, sir. That sounds like a hell of a long time. (laughs) Five years. The guy gives him, he's out in like two and a half. Oh my goodness. But those sentences having been given and we're not having the desired effect, obviously. So I'm skipping, I'm doing the fast forward thing here, skipping back to me having taken over. And it was very serendipitously how that happened. Now that one night we had brought in that when we worked 28 nights in a row to the tune of 1.6 million pounds was my rough calculation. One of those nights was a 55 ton night, 110,000 pounds of green came on that Island. And it, we had it in about six houses full. I mean, slap full back to front, bathroom, living room, kitchen, dining room, anywhere you could stick one of these bales of green, it was there. And they're running it that next day. And I'm off now. I'm taking a break. We've got two days break. So I walk over to one of the houses that's, you know, that they're loading up. And, the, and how it works is while the houses are being loaded that night, the vehicles, the cars, the trucks, the vans, the, you know, the Broncos with blacked out windows and anything that you can put a bale of this green in, they were working. That's how the rest of the town, even the women get involved as drivers. They would drive out to the house that it's being loaded, load their vehicles there, drive them into town that night and park them in the driveway in the front yard in plain sight and just leave them there overnight <laughs> till the next day. And then the next day, what didn't get loaded, preloaded, they would come to the house and we would load them and everybody working. And it takes an average to, you know, on a job of say, you know, 25 tons, just 25 tons. It takes an average of 50, 60 people to make the job work. There's so many different moving parts. There's the people who go to Columbia. There's the boats like me that goes off to unload the mothership. There's the boats that come to us. There's the house, there's the bail handlers, there's the drivers. I mean, it's the whole mechanism. So, they take this during the day. We bring it in at night from sundown to sunup is when we have our opportunity, window of opportunity to get it from offshore and onto that island and tucked away and out of sight. That's when the people start showing up and they open the trunks so or they open the back doors of the vans and their guys are thrown and then they're loading and they shut the door and bang it, kick it on the bumper and off they go. Now, everybody involved, and we must have had 200 of these two meter radios that have a five digit combination on top that in those days were virtually unscannable. So everybody has communication, even the drivers and they've got a 120 mile trip to make across Miami from Everglades. And they're generally uh, directed to a plaza or a strip mall or someplace in the, in, in uh, West Miami, someplace in Kendall, usually uh, off of Chrome Avenue. And they would pull into the parking lot and we would have another guy that belonged on our team with the Cuban partners who actually actually owned the stuff pointing. That's our car. That's our truck. That's our van. And they would get, our guys would get out. Their guy would get in it, go empty it and bring it back empty. Our guy would get in it and go make another load. If there was time, this is what the government now describes as a dead drop. We invented that process because that was also a buffer between Cubans in Miami and us in Everglades. Cubans in Miami don't know where it's coming from. Guys in Miami don't know where it's going, or in Everglades don't know where it's going to in Miami. So there's always that buffer. Nobody ever saw one another. But along with that drive, they had a safety valve involved with all these drivers. No less than 10 or 12 spotters, we call them, were paid $5,000 a day. And all they had to do was drive to that plaza and back all day. 
in staggered positions and staggered forms where somebody got stopped. They were simply instructed to wait till whoever stopped you gets between your vehicle and theirs. And you throw that thing that now has two, maybe, maybe a thousand, 2000 pounds more heavy than it normally is throw it in reverse and clock that guy as hard as you can hit him. And he's not going anywhere, but you're not going to outrun the radio. So, you know, by everybody already knows I'm getting stopped. You know, that's the first thing you do is say, Oh, it's all over. And you cream this guy and take off. But all you need to do is you're not going to outrun the radio. So you just get out of sight of him. And one of the spotters will pick you up. Now, the thing about that is let them have it. The thing about letting them have it, whether it's a boat or a car or a vessel we use offshore, the owners of those cars, boats, and ve- uh, offshore vessels are never on the boat. So if anything ever happens or anything looks like it's going to happen, it's like, <clears throat> game's up. They call the owner of that vehicle, and he he calls the law right away and says, hey, I just looked out in the driveway. My truck's gone or my car's gone. <laughs> you know, somebody stole my crap or my boat or whatever the case may be. And Ultimately, they're relieved of any responsibility for which that's been involved in, and they'll get it back. That's one of the little tricks of the trade. <laughs> now, we're working offshore with these, I mean, these multi-ton loads, and that boat is like way down, man. It's, you know, we've had 40,000 pounds on, the, on our boat alone one time, and it's barely moving. And we have riding alongside of us what's called a chase boat. This is an offshore, very powerful boat that can do 80 miles an hour before you're butt can even hit the seat so the captain's busy in the wheelhouse after my partner and i get the boat loaded you know and stacked and however we need to do it captain goes busy on the way into shore he's dialed in he's on the radar he's on the radar he's doing his job you know and we have two or three boats working with us there's never any communicating going on between the vessels we're running dark we communicated by way of what was called a polaris scanner which were a a very interesting piece of equipment that we had, uh, I had actually a connection to the Everglades National Park. One of the park rangers was actually one of my crewmen on the job. He introduced me to who the government was buying their counter surveillance technology from in Miami. And I was buying better, if not well, the same, if not better equipment than they were buying because I had a bigger war chest than the government did. So um, we'd get off of that boat. If it looked like somebody's coming down, we got a 50 mile radius on the radar. And it can be shrinked down to 25, to 20, to 15. If that vessel gets or that target gets close to us where it looks like it's, it may be coming, we just get off onto that go-fast boat and take off into the night and let them have it. Because Captain Billy didn't on the boat as Dad did. <laughs> so he just called Dad and say, hey, Dad, gang's up. So Dad called the cops and said, somebody stole my boat. And he'll get it back. But that never happened. We, we never lost a load. And I never lost a load. You know, just because of the sophistication and, and the, you know, the way that we were doing this for and and got so good at doing this over the over the years that, you know, people just had no clue that that amount of material was being taken down one road in that place, one road into Everglades and one road out. And then from there, there's only one road to Miami. So I had a couple of uh, U.S. Treasury agents ask me one day when I, after I had gotten indicted with that 160 years mandatory life and, and $16 million in fines from four indictments, they wanted to question me. And I wasn't about to cooperate because not only, you know, throughout the entire decades or so that I had been doing this, did I ever see a gun? Only once did I ever see a gun. And that was the first time I went to Columbia. 
and met the boss, the guy I bought millions of pounds from when I took over. Um, and I'm explaining to these treasury agents about, you know, do you understand the geography of Everglades City? Oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Well, how many roads in there and out of there are there? Well, there's one. <laughs> yeah, there's one. <laughs> there's one road. Now, how many roads are there from there directly to Miami? There's one. Yeah, there's one. U.S. 41. And I asked him point blank. I looked him both right in the eye and I said, well, how do you think we got those millions of pounds of green to Miami? It didn't go over there on the backs of pelicans and, and damn porpoises. That's for sure, man. It went right down that one road. And nine times out of ten, my people are waving at you as they're going by because we were masters of hide in plain sight. The stuff's going to Miami during the day. Thousands of pounds of it. You know, who would ever know? Who would ever suspect? I mean, they never did. <laughs> Tim, Tim, you've got to tell us the story of meeting the big man in Colombia. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I had gone down there. Uh, this was my first trip to Colombia that I was working for the, my two Cuban partners, Calito and Leo. Um, after I had taken, um, I had the opportunity when we were doing that 50, that, that 28 night run that 55 tons i was given the job prior a couple of days prior with my buddy jimmy to go into this brand new brand new 40 foot winnebago it had 125 miles on it and strip everything out of it from the windows down i mean it, he said and daryl one of the bosses you know the brothers he says leave the you know the cabinets and the curtains and everything above leave all that there but tear out everything you can tear out down below. We even took the captain's chairs out in the seats and they put airbags in the springs. So when they put 11 and a half thousand pounds of green in this thing, they even had to pull a bale out so the guy could, you know, sit down between them and drive this thing because there wasn't any seats in it. <laughs> so I go over like a dummy, having just done 55 tons. I made $75,000 that night and Daryl, catches me out of the corner of his eye because i foolishly went over to see how the house was you know how how it was going he said timmy i'd like you to do me a favor if you would please he said i'd like you to drive this winnebago to miami because it can't go to the drop spot can't go to the plaza or anything like that because i mean you get within 40 feet of this thing and you can smell it right so it had to go right to the house nobody on any of the crews had ever been to one of these stash houses except for the adults the guys that were putting this you know, putting all the things together. That's why he says, I need somebody that I can trust. I need you to drive this to that house, stay there for the day until the load's done coming in and drive a car full of money back for me that next evening. And I reluctantly, just because of who he was, I said, yeah, okay, so I'm the dumbass that gets to sit there in between this thing and I'm driving this behemoth. Well, long story short, I meet the guys in Miami who are putting all of making, doing all this work. Now come these operations, I told you, Operation Everglades 1 and 2. All those mucks that knew what was going on and putting all the work together went to prison. They got nailed and went, you know, they're doing their thing and like this. Well, I get a knock on my door one day from this guy named Jorge that I met at that house. And he says, took him a month to find me. All they knew was Timmy and they knew this, my face. You know, but Naples and Everglades and the surrounding area isn't that big. And it took him a month. They found me. I get a knock on my door. Timmy, we got work to do, brother. It's backing up. Can you do this? And I just thought I would blurt it out. Heck yeah. You know, just like that. So I went back. The infrastructure was still there. Everybody that was actually doing the work, the kids and everybody that I worked with, we were still there. The adults are the ones that went, you know, 
they didn't have a clue that you know the other half of the town and and all the mostly all the adult kids were involved in it and i put everybody back to work but what the guys in in miami wanted for the first go round though it was like a test run was me to go to columbia purchase it check it out myself go get it and bring it back to them so I fly to Columbia on a jet, a, a corporate Lear that ultimately Carlito and Leo and I all owned it. The three of us owned it. Five-hour flight to Columbia. I took my buddy Ruben with me the first time because I need a translator. He's speaking Spanish. We get to the guys, the boss's house. That's all the name you'll ever get out of me is the boss. And this beautiful mansion that was inherited to him by his father, you know, sitting on the side of this mountain. And I don't meet him. We don't meet him the first night because we got in late. We go in and we, you know, we go to this apartment in the back of the house, which was four times bigger than my house here in the States, this little apartment, um, little. And uh, the next morning we get up, we have a beautiful breakfast. We have a chef and our own chef in our kitchen, our own kitchen taking care of us. We walk in and, and we're in the room with Rico, who is the boss's right-hand man, as far as we could tell. And in, in from the front door comes this, Cuban guy, a Colombian dude, he's maybe five foot three, black hair, jet black hair, you know, pulled back in a ponytail, just like you'd expect. And he had on a t-shirt, he had camouflage fatigues, a gun belt, a, a sidearm with a gun belt with a sidearm and combat boots. But the t-shirt he was wearing on the front had a big smiley face and it said underneath it had, have a nice day. <laughs> so he walked past me to get a, to get a cup of tea and on the back of the shirt was that same smiley face with a smoking bullet hole in its head. And it said, or else, <laughs> you know, so that kind of gave away a little bit of this guy's, I mean, this guy's a billionaire. He's ahead of his own little deal here, you know, and he's got a sense of humor and he says, introducing and talking, blah, blah, blah. Let's go see what you're here to see. We go off into the jungle and we take care of business. And, and I walk, you know, I get in this Bronco and we're driving and then, as soon as his buddy Rico opened the car door, the truck, you know, the Bronco door, this smell of burlap and green hit me. I mean, it smacked me in the face. And it's, I mean, if they could make a cologne out of that stuff, I'd be, I'd be their best customer. You know, because I absolutely <laughs> love that smell. It takes me back. So long story again, you know, I go through these, these, it looked like an Incan ruin. These things, bales of wheat of green were stacked so high. And so wide, they almost look like an Incan ruin. And I'm going down through there with his six-foot pole, bamboo pole with a piece of pipe on the end of it, poking him and taking out some and testing it. How many of those you got? So he kicked down 100, 200, 300 of them. And the guys are weighing them as we're kicking them down. I'm spraying a particular mark on them so I know the stuff that I'm getting, I'm coming to get, is what I got, what I got marked. So we get back to the house, we're cleaned up and we go to have dinner and we're sitting in this big grand room waiting on dinner and all having cocktails and the room was full of women, women and, you know, just all kind of people. And they're, you know, they're drinking and there's, there's bowls of, you know, the white laying around and, and, um, everybody's having a party and having a good time. And I'm talking with the boss in the, in the, in the chair next to me and he's lounging back to the cocktail and translating back and forth. And out of nowhere comes this guy uh, I had not seen that day. And he goes up and he whispers something into the boss's ear. And I'm watching this guy's face intently, the boss's. And it went just ashen like this. And I uh, right away, I knew, what the hell, man? I, I knew something was wrong. And he puts his cocktail down, and he, you know, like this. And he gets up out of his chair and he starts to, you know, walking out of the room. 
And I see him, I turn and I look and I see him going down the hallway toward the kitchen. Now he's fast walking. I get up and I'm following this guy. <laughs> you know, he's leaving, I'm leaving, right? So he goes through the kitchen, through these doors, out on the veranda, down the steps and across the lawn. And all the, the compound lights are facing, you know, inward from, from the forest. And he runs into the forest about 20 feet and he dives down under and, and, he's, and he's hiding. And I'm right on his heels, and I must have went 20 feet past him, and I dove into the bushes like a dive, a swimmer off starting blocks, right? And I land, and I'm sitting there, you know, waiting for all hell to break loose because I don't have a clue. This guy runs out of the house, his own house, something's gone wrong. And I wasn't there. It seemed like an hour, but it wasn't there maybe 30 seconds, and I hear this Spanish voice out of the back, out of, the back of the house, hello, like this. And all of a sudden, this guy starts laughing, and now I'm getting pissed. And I see his silhouette going through the yard and he's kind of, you know, cleaning himself off. He goes into the house. So I'm thinking, what's going on, man? Now I'm starting to get aggravated. I'm like, what, you know, what? I get back into the house. And finally, I'm sweating profusely. He's sitting in his chair. He's already got a drink. And he sits down with a big smile on his face. And the people around him are kind of, you know, kind of giggling. And he looks over and he drew a translator. He says to me, where in the hell did you think you were going? <laughs> I looked at I looked him right straight back in the eyes and I said, dude, when the big man gets up and runs out of the house, my ass is following him. <laughs> like and there was a big joke. They all started laughing. And, but come to find oh. out that what the guy whispered in his ear was that, you know, prior to us getting there and doing any business, he would send his wife and his kids to the in-laws until we left. So no business was done in front of the family. Well, somehow or other, he had gotten word because, you know, there's this little bit of a switchback to get to this palace built on the side of this mountain. And he's got spotters you know, up and down the road. Well, somehow word got back that his wife was on the way up the mountain. She's, she's coming home. And the last thing he wanted to be was in a house full of, you know, beautiful women and a party going on. So he ducked out the back door and leaves Rico in charge of the party so he can take all the crap for it, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, here's this guy, he's a billionaire. He's the head of his own little, you know, cartel, if that's what you wish to call it, which it really wasn't. And he turns into the biggest pee whipped person on earth when it comes to it. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, that's enough of this crap. The next morning we get, I get on the jet, you know, and it's another five hours back home and I fly home and it, it, it had become a thing. You know, I didn't, I wasn't going off quite as often, you know, as we got going, but the load went off without a hitch. You know, I made, I made them money. Everybody made money. And um, now it was go back and, you know, I'm flying maybe twice a month or three times a month that I'm buying anywhere from, you know, 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 pounds of green at any one time and sending the boats one after the other to get it and bring it to us. And, you know, there was, you know, there was a point in time we're just out, just offshore out here in the Gulf. I mean, there were times where it looked like a parking lot out there. There were so many boats waiting to be unloaded. <laughs> it was just crazy. But that was my first experience in Columbia with the boss. But we wound up being really dear friends, you know. We got we got about you're a fantastic storyteller. Tim. We got we've only got about fifteen minutes left, so we're gonna have okay, to. Okay, well, ask away, man. Up, what do you want to know? Round, round up with how the shit hits the fan and, and what happens from there. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? We we're working really hard, like I said, you know, and everybody's enjoying and having fun. And I didn't just work at Everglades crew. There's, you know, 50, 60 people, you know, 200 people, half the town of Everglades willing to work. There was also a crew on, on, you know, to the North of us, a little Island called Goodland. There was a crew on Marco Island, which is just North. And in the city of Naples, there was a crew and just North of them on a, a little Island called Pine Island. There was a Pine Island crew. So we're talking 50 plus people on each crew and each crew is working, you know? So I had set up a load, skipping forward again. I had set up a load of about 57,000 pounds of green to come into uh, Boca Pass, Boca, um, Boca Grand Pass, which is up by an island called Pine Island, like I mentioned. My Everglades City crew was going to get half and the Pine Island crew was going to take half and I was going to split the load like this, you know, a little bit of subterfuge, confusionist kind of a thing going on. I knew the Everglades City crew knew exactly what they were doing. So I went up to work with the Pine Island crew because I didn't really know them that well. I knew that, you know, I'd worked with them before and some of my guys had, but I wanted to be there while this was going on. So the job gets started and the boats start coming in and I've got a box truck backed up into the woods out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this, we were at, we're up in the back of BFE, man. I mean, there's nobody out there and this little beat up old grown over road went to this dock that was falling apart that they backed the truck up next to. And only these Pine Island guys know where this thing is at. You know, I mean, I don't even know where I am, but boats are coming in and we're throwing these, you know, these, these bales of green in the truck. And we get about maybe a hundred or so of them in there and the, and the boats stop coming. And the chatter on the radio stops. And a couple minutes later, the guy out that I got spotting on the road out there, you know, for us at the at the entrance, he says, Timmy, because on the radio, he says, Timmy, a car just pulled up in here, man. And it stopped and it backed out and went back down the other road, down the way. And I'm thinking, that's not right, man, because nobody knows we're out here. I mean, who the hell? So, you know, the hair is standing up on the back of my neck and I go walking out there just to see, you know, and he starts telling my guy starts telling me again, he said, yeah, man, that guy just pulled up in here. Well, I look behind me and everybody that was back there at the dock and at that truck was now standing behind me because they knew the shit wasn't right. Nobody's on the radio. The boats aren't coming car pulled up in here. And just as soon as we all get together, we're looking around at one another. You could hear it sounded like 25 cars coming down the road all at once. This tire sounds and if you ran where we were standing, if you ran that direction, there was a palmetto field of about five, six acres. And palmettos are, are a tiny, you know, palm bush that doesn't grow any higher than maybe about four feet. And if you run the other direction, there's a pine forest that you could just breeze your way and run right through. Well, it happened so quickly. Everybody but myself and this Colombian guy that came on board as an illegal, because that happens a lot of times, guys will hit you right on the boat and they'll just come in and disappear. Well, like a dumb butt, like a dumb butt, I run the way the palm, you know, the palmettos are, and everybody runs toward the trees the other way. And I didn't get 10 steps in, and here's the lights of the car, and I see that first car, and I duck down. And all of a sudden that gate pull right in there and they're getting out of the cars and there's some running over there. There's some guys running over there. I can hear all this going on. You know, I'm, I'm less than 20 feet away from where the first car pulled in and I can see under the bushes, their feet, this guy's feet when you get out of this Bronco. So, you know, and it's like five in the morning and we're verging on dawn. I mean, it's not going to be much longer. The sun's going to come up and man, my ass is right there. And, 
when the door opened up on this Bronco, this and I heard the guys, eh, I can still hear this Colombian guy. He ran the same way I did, only he kept running. And I just crunch, crunch, crunching through all these dry branches. And I'm thinking, dude, stop running because if they start running after me, man, they're going to trip over after you. They're going to trip over me before they even get to you. And, and he stopped. God help me. Thank God somehow or other he just stopped or we couldn't hear him any longer. And I sat there and listened to the whole show and watched these guys' feet. Well, the guy in the Bronco decides he's going to go down the street and look, and then so he takes off. And I'm sitting here trying to decide, how in the hell am I going to get out of here without any of these guys seeing me? Because they're all right around us. Well, here comes the Bronco back, and it pulls in, and I can see his feet. When the door opens, the interior light comes on, I see his feet. He shuts the door, and I hear another car pull up out in the street out in front of me, which is about maybe 15, 20 yards, you know, to my forward. And there, the, I hear a voice. I hear a car door open, and the voice goes, Where are you, what are you doing? Where are you going? And the guy in the Bronco says, well, I'm going to walk back up in there, you know, and see what we got. And the guy says, well, hang on a minute. I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, bingo. <laughs> They both go walking back off into the woods, but the car in the street was still running. And I didn't know, you know, if I looked, I mean, it's light enough now, but dude, I've had, I got to go. I got to make a move. And if I look over these bushes and there's somebody in that car and they see me, one of two things is going to. Oh, either gonna, lost your own. you know, there you go. Arrested with a gun in my face or I'm going to have to knock this guy out and keep running. Well, I looked up over the bushes. There was nobody in the car. <laughs> I took off like a jackrabbit, man. I went through the across the road, through the ditch, and into the bushes. And I ran till I couldn't breathe, man. I mean, I don't know how far I ran. I dove under a pile of weeds and sticks and branches and covered myself up and laid there. And once I got my breath, I'm hearing the helicopters, and I'm you know now it's daylight. I'm hearing all this goings on in a helicopter and I hear him pulling my box van, banging it through the trees, trying to pull it out of the woods. Right. I lay there all day long and listened to this going on. Well, at some point during that, at, that afternoon, I kind of, you know, I, I've got weeds and crap up. Just my eyes are showing. And, you know, I, I woke up cause I heard, you know, branches cracking and snapping and leaves crunching. And I opened my eyes up and I looked, I looked over like this and there's a, a bobcat. Had to have been 80 pounds if it was a pound, about an arm's length away from me, just making slow steps like this because it saw my eyes, you know, my movement. It was curious and it was taking another, and it was crouched down. And, and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, I just spent the night getting away from the law and I got out of all that shit and I'm only to get eaten by this damn thing. <laughs> you know, and I said, that's not happening. And I just, I don't know, I just, you know, I had had enough and I just went, Wow! And I threw leaves and everything in the air and screamed like that. Well, this thing did a jump in the air, did about three flips and took <laughs> off to the bushes like it was shot out of a cannon because I scared the piss out of it. <laughs> right? And I just later on that night, I made my way in, you know, out of the woods and up next to the road. And I stayed off the road. And about four miles down the road was a fish house. So, like, here I am at like 2.30 in the morning. And this fish house is open. The lights are on. Lights are on in the parking lot. This is before cell phones. There's a there's a phone in the parking lot, and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to go up to this phone in this brightly lit parking lot and be the only one out there and not draw any attention to myself? I'm trying, you know, this is not going to work. Well, 
while I'm thinking this through, two shrimp boats pulled in and unloaded. They unload their catch and the crews go up and line up at that phone booth to call for their rides home. Well, I just kind of sauntered on down there and got line with the rest of the crew. <laughs> when it came time to, you know, my time on the phone, I just opened the phone book up and first thing I saw under taxi, I pointed to it and dialed it, you know, and I conned this guy into somehow coming and getting me from, you know, he was 25 miles away from me. He wasn't even close. I said, I will give you $600 cash to show up and I'll give you your fare and whatever else you want. Just get, you know, come and get me. I've been fishing for days. I need to go home. I want to go to Puerto Gordon to drop me off. He says, okay, but you better, I mean, this better be true. He pulled it. And while I'm talking to him, the sheriff's squad car, sheriff's deputy car, pulls into the parking lot and it circles all the way around me and it goes out at another entrance over here and goes back down the road. I said, dude, just get here, man. I hung the phone up and 40 minutes later, here he comes. I threw $600 in his lap, climbed in the back seat and slumped down like this. And I said, take me to a motel and put a court. <laughs> That's how I got away. I mean, that night, but then it wasn't long after that come the investigation and all the, you know, you know, the questioning and stuff like that, you know, and uh, uh, grand jury indictment, you know, coming to the, you know, uh, appearance to the grand jury, which I took the fifth on. So they excused me, which only told me that they didn't really need me. They had plenty, you know, and ultimately what wound up happening was I was given uh, four indictments and from the time from uh, September 1st, 1987, the United States government changed the federal sentencing guidelines across the board to mandatory minimums, and we didn't know this. A year prior, our uncles and dads and grandpas and everybody, they're getting a year and a half. They're getting like like 36 months, like the Daniels boys, you know, and just, you know, almost a slap on the wrist. Now you get one indictment. There's four counts on each indictment. There's a mandatory 10 years to life on each count and a million dollar fine. So if you got one indictment, that's a mandatory 40 years to life they can give you and in, in $4 million in fines. Well, I had four of these indictments. So they added up to 160 years mandatory to life and $16 million in fines. And what, that's what they got a rate for. for what, you know, what, went, what went through your head when you realized you were facing 160 years? Well, you know what? To be honest, to be honest with you, um, Sean, it never really, I could never really wrap my mind around life in prison, life sentence. It just didn't register. It was like, it was an unreal thing to me. Um, it was obviously scary because these people meant business, you know, and quite frankly, you know, and I really understood, you know, how the seriousness of this was when, um, the only cooperation that I could offer them, and, and that's what it took to get out from under all of this, was cooperation. And I wrote this in my book that everybody that had ever hauled a bale of pot in southwest Florida somehow or other was named and was indicted. And what wound up happening was that they started realizing that they're getting all kids now. There's no adults or very few because the last two go-rounds um, – Life Magazine wrote a 18-page centerfold unprecedented article in 1984. It came out about a small southwest Florida town tarred with drug smuggling, and most of its 600 residents said, so what? But that meant also within the article that it was a small town in southwest Florida that was mostly women and young children and young men because the entire male population is going to prison. <laughs> you know, so 
I had no recourse but to cooperate by way of, you know, I said, look, I can't cooperate by giving you names and stuff like that, because even though the violence didn't exist, you throw one of these Cuban guys or these Colombians under the bus, they're going to come back at you and do exactly what they're very good at. And that's take out your family, you, do, you know, the dog and the cat and your cousins and everybody, you know, just to prove a point. So cooperation was not in the cards for me. But what I was able to do with them and they, what they wanted to know, these two Treasury agents that finally cornered me, you know, in an, in an, in an interview, they wanted to know how I was able to do this for, for all this time, a decade. And they couldn't catch me. And I said, well, I can tell you dumbasses that. I <laughs> mean, game's over. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give you any names. I'll tell you how it all works. And if you can glean anything from whatever the facts that I give you, then, you know, more power to you. But you're not going to get a name. So I started imparting to them how it worked like I did with you, you know, and the sheer volume and the sheer amounts of money. We had a money house that I would get paid in on Miami and kill Coral Gables at any one time had two to three hundred million dollars in cash. And I would have been there for days, sometimes two and three days, counting millions of dollars with six money machines going and it. it would still take that long. We ultimately had to start weighing it. Because I should be in Columbia or I should be working on a load, but I'm still counting money because now the jobs are starting to back up and, and I'm getting paid. Now my paydays are 30 million, 40 million, 50 million because the jobs are backing up. And the reason that happens is because I don't get paid immediately. If I bring 30,000 pounds in and you owe me 15 million, I take all of it and give it to you except for $15 million of it I keep. You lose your crap in Miami, I'm going to sell ours and get paid. You give me my money, I give you your stuff back. That's just how it worked. You know, so it was always, you know, we always have that safety valve involved in it. So I'm imparting these, you know, scenarios to them. And they obviously didn't believe me because, you know, for a month they've been taking me to this room and questioning me. And one day they take me to another room and it's got this one guy in it with a polygraph machine. And, you know, he started asking me these questions and I turned around, I walked out of there with a big grin on my face and I looked back at these other investigators from the U.S. Attorney's Office and, you know, and, and, um, and the local sheriff's department and all those other agencies and they're all scratching their head going, holy crap, he wasn't lying. <laughs> uh, Tim, yeah. Tim, i got to stop you. We've run out of time. We've got another guest about to come in. That, that's fine, you, man. Just, just, just the pace at which you tell it, it's so gripping. Everyone in the chat has been... a. You're on fire, brother. Can you just tell the viewers where they can find out about you and get your book and that kind of stuff? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm sure if you go online, you know, to there are a lot of uh, different places and 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 bookstores, probably in the UK, probably in London, in the area that will that will order your book, you know, from St. Martin's Press or from Macmillan's Press. But um, I'm also on Instagram at Original Saltwater Cowboy. Um, you can Google my name, Tim McBride at, uh, slash Everglades and every uh, show that I've been on, every newspaper, every article, everything that you want to know about me is online there. But uh, if you can, I urge you to, you know, to buy the book, you know, because this is history of that industry in America. And it's literally the story of how it began with the first generation and how it ended with the third generation, which was me and our crew. That ended Caribbean green from coming into this country, quite literally. That's the significance of what it was we were doing. We obviously weren't the only ones doing it, and I never say that we were. We were only able to tell, I was able to tell a story about a small town that was able to integrate it into a way of life, spanning three generations and, and running the Caribbean with impunity. 
So original Saltwater Cowboys on Instagram, Tim McBride, Saltwater Cowboy on, on Facebook. And Google me, like I said, you'll find everything you need to know about me on, online. All right. Thanks, bro, but, for telling your story so well. Really remind appreciate me, Sean, it. You got you got this much of a story that's this big. <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots of But I sure thank you for your time. And I love my UK friends. They're awesome. I got a picture of my book that a very, very wonderful woman took when she was at Stonehenge with my book with Stonehenge in the back, which is so cool. I just love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tim. We'll see you again. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Yes, sir. I'd love to come right. back, Sean. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Hi. Hey, Len. How are you doing? Hello. How are you, Stephen? I'm wonderful. Thank you for joining us. We've just been um, trying to get to the bottom of Havana syndrome where we've been waiting for you. It's a fascinating phenomenon. I'm really looking forward to learning as much as I can about it from you. But maybe uh, you could just tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How do you, how do you describe what you do? So I am. Uh, uh, I was born in the former USSR, and this is where I received my uh, education, uh, medical med uh, as a medical doctor. Practiced for several years, uh, uh, specialized in endocrinology. Uh, came to the states in the early nineties for to work for a pharmaceutical company. So it's been three years. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> thirty years. Uh, and um, I'm a U.S. naturalized, naturalized citizen. In 2019, my attacks, as that I understand now, are um, Havana syndrome attacks, started and escalated. And then 2020, I was diagnosed with Havana syndrome by the same expert at the university of miami his uh, name is uh, quite known uh, dr michael hoffer he gave me the same diagnosis as he gave to the um diplomats and spies medevac from uh, cuba but i'm not i don't work for government and holding secrets i don't you know i'm a civilian and it is that's, that's, all... that's exactly what a spy would say though isn't it <laughs> good good point uh i am welcome to uh any intelligence agency to look into my background which i i have been begging to investigate this um the proper venue to investigate domestic civilian cases is fbi because civilian domestic that's fbi and yet, over two years, now, what, uh, two and a half years after I received my diagnosis, we haven't been able to get an answer from the FBI that shows that they're even remotely interested in investigating it. And yet, just, just, a year, just over a year ago, in November 2021, uh, FBI issued the press release that this is their top priority. Havana syndrome is their top priority. Well, clearly not. Um, and and this is just not acceptable because this is a public safety issue. Uh, these directed energy weapons and instruments that every expert now agrees that they exist they are functional, they're operational. 
and because people like me who are members of the general public affected our brain remotely accessed and damaged this is a public safety issue and 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 because of this is public this is a public safety issue you can't the argument of national security which is their favorite argument um it just doesn't work we are the national security the security of civilians u.s citizens is a matter of national security so they just kind of painted themselves in the corner yeah i mean it sounds like you're certainly having a frustrating time of it i mean maybe if we just to back up a little bit you if you don't mind sharing of course you could you could um you know key us in on some of the symptoms of havana syndrome what what is it like day to day when i mean what did you first start noticing uh this is terrible and i wouldn't wish this on anyone it it, it the main uh, um, symptoms that sort of connects it all to me is vibration. And that has been described by, you know, everybody who complained about it. They say it starts with sound. Yes, there's sound, there's high-pitched tinnitus, it, 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 tinnitus. It, it's, uh, it's very much high, like, electronic um, uh, buzzing. And it becomes deafening, but vibration. Your your entire body vibrates. Your brain, your 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 head vibrates. The pressure becomes so intolerable. I I I actually developed a scale from one to ten. Then ten is when I'm having the convulsions. Convulsions, and I've had two episodes when I actually had whole body convulsions without losing consciousness and, and it's and it's typical for uh, uh directed energy weapons but this is 10. well lately it, it's been escalating 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 uh every day i have either level nine or level 9.5 and to the point that i scream uncontrollably this is absolutely intolerable. I, uh, I just lose equilibrium, lose ability to speak, communicate. Um, mental fog. I see this kind of white snow in front of my eyes. Uh, this is neurologically very severe, and and. So it start it starts suddenly and and it stops uh, and it stops suddenly. So there's it, the duration and intensity varies. Lately, it has been very intense. Nine point five. I, I actually I actually started passing out uh, uh, during this this it, like uh, uh, attacks. I just lose lose count like momentarily. But I, I have a gap, so I, I passed out, and then I, and then it sort of pulls back and and keeps me conscious again. And it's and it's um, 
probably because I've been more outspoken, more visible, and I've been a part of this um, lawsuit that's been filed in um, January, or this month, on the 11th of uh, January, is in the District of Texas, where this largest organization for targeted individuals and uh, victims of Havana syndrome uh, are uh, the, the the largest organization is it's in Texas. Uh, it's called Targeted Justice, and um, I'm on the advisory board of this organization. And we filed this historic lawsuit on the 11th of this month. And I can explain why it is so, um, uh, why it's different bef- uh, uh, versus uh, everything that has been filed before. Yeah. Well, if, you, if, if you don't mind, because I, I mean, I'm very sorry to hear about your symptoms and that, that sounds like a lot to handle and, and deal with on a day to day. So you, re- you, you really do have my sympathy there. But you also said something that piqued my interest at the start of the conversation, something about energy weapons being the cause of it. What, what exactly do you mean by that? And how would you have come in contact with something like that? Okay, so it, I have the same diagnosis that the diplomats received from Dr. Hoffer. The National Academy of Sciences is in 2020, uh, in December of 2020, released a uh, released their findings, uh, but there were 19 experts from different fields. Um, it was uh, led by Dr. Relman uh, from Stanford. Uh, this is a you know 78 page uh, report, and they examined uh, a variety of hypothesis hypotheses from um, uh, from uh, uh, chemicals and, and infection to uh, psychogenic uh, hypothesis, and they came to a conclusion, which still remains a scientific consensus, that in patients diagnosed with Havan syndrome, just like I'm, just like I'm diagnosed, just like the diplomats are diagnosed, the most plausible cause of these brain damages that they find um, is directed pulsed electromagnetic energy in the microwave uh, frequency. So directed pulsed microwaves from an outside source. So that is a uh, current scientific consensus and intelligence agencies uh, agree with it, um, as um, printed out in the latest report, which is uh, was uh, actually exactly a month ago, uh, exactly a year ago, February first of twenty twenty one. That was the latest intelligence report. So just, I mean, you've said that you've you've had a doctor diagnose you with uh, Havana syndrome. And I, I suppose people might be wondering, what what is it unique to Havana syndrome that results in that diagnosis that couldn't, you know, the, the symptoms possibly couldn't be explained by other well-known uh, 
uh, and more common uh, illnesses uh, as well. What what is it specifically that that doctor has found that uh, are, are able to diagnose it as uh, a Savannah syndrome? Okay, uh, Dr. Hoffer explains that he if you can access the, his publication of 2018 and his lectures, he explains it very clearly that in these people exposed to this kind of sonic vibration episodes that he calls attacks and, and intelligence agencies call, call attacks, there were certain symptoms accompanying that experience and they were lingering in the most and the most um prevalent symptoms is a combination of cognitive symptoms loss, loss of memory loss of uh, um kind of mental fog and instability on their feet so there's their vestibular changes and it reminds the findings remind would remind you of a concussion so um if these people were actually exposed to some kind of mechanic um, mechanical trauma you would say well yeah that uh, that's a mild traumatic brain injury synonymous to concussion so but there's no there's no concussion so you have symptoms that are very reminiscent and yet they're different from um, um, traumatic uh, uh, brain injury. And the vestibular findings, the prevalence and the, and the degree of, of these findings are very, uh, 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 they don't fit into a, your typical con concussion. So it's a concussion type injury without a concussion. Okay, I mean, and the symptoms that you described before were horrendous, and, and I'm just I'm trying to get a fix on uh, on a day to day basis. How how frequent is this, and are there any triggers that you're aware of? Are there any uh, sort of management techniques you can you can coach yourself through to sort of alleviate some of the symptoms? Does medication play a role? There is no medical path to treat Havana syndrome uh, with ongoing attacks. So CDC um, uh, published a, a report in which on Havana syndrome in which they described it as a biphasic disorder. So there's a phase one with attacks and symptoms immediately following the attacks. And then there is phase two, which represents a um, like some sort of chronic uh, phase uh, where just brain degradation continues. So if your attacks stop, then you can receive a treatment similar to rehabilitation from traumatic brain injury. But if you if your attacks continue, that there is really no medical path. Like imagine if you are receiving, if somebody hammers you with a baseball bat every day, what's the medical treatment for that? 
there's anything you do would be like putting a band-aid on a bleeding wound you have to stop the attacks and then do therapeutic rehabilitation therapy so i'm stuck in phase one my attacks are daily they absolutely change the way i think i the, the, the I, I communicate i socialize it i can't predict these attacks they can wake me up at night they can be uh early in the morning late at night i i there's no way there's no way to shield yourself from these attacks and people talk about okay well if it, since this is microwave energy then you know put yourself in a faraday cage well it's not exactly the type of microwave that a faraday cage can stop the regular microwave uh, um, microwave uh, wave it, it, it propagates in a certain in a certain uh, um, um, direction but it oscillates in the in the uh, direction perpendicular to its propagation but well but that's um that's not the type of microwaves we're talking about we're well, sorry to interrupt again i mean since, since we're talking about the, the technology here so i mean uh, it might be worth mentioning these sort these weapons these high energy weapons now this sounds like incredibly advanced weaponry if that's what it is and it it obviously have to be able to target someone specifically without you know accidentally getting people they weren't uh, intending to target and a lot of people would look at that them kind of claim to say that we just don't have technology of that that sophistication yet uh, that's capable of such things how, how would you how would you attempt to convince them that actually uh, you know the military or the government has access to weaponry that can do the kind of things you claim have been done i cannot convince anybody because i don't have access to that to that information my my understanding is is more on the medical biological side of things but i can repeat what i've heard from neuroweapon experts like such as uh, uh dr james giordano uh, for example who actually received my case looked at it validated it and sent it to the department of defense for them to investigate it well you know six eight months later there's still no investigation but that's that's just a side note but i can tell you that dr giordano dr mccrate uh armin krishnan there there there's several serious neuroweapon experts that study this technology for a living they say that this is a mature operational neuroweapon technology that it's not a just a single uh weapon like a ray gun it is a directed energy weapon system and as a system it contains sensors to uh, locate uh target's brain and it contains um some kind of uh, uh, directed energy emitting device and um a lot of 
physicists says uh, say that well you can't you can't you know microwave propagate it's a, if it's a basically it's like your it's a it's a part of radio frequency spectrum so so radio uh, uh, frequency waves they you know go every every other direction like imagine a radio station and it goes every other way well this is not that kind of energy this is the type that where oscillation propagate in the direction of the wave and that makes it extremely penetrable it has a penetration of a neutrino it can go between the molecules there's nothing that you can shield yourself with and the and the other argument was well it will require a very uh high source of energy and they just and those experts are simply unaware of how much the military um has um made the advancements in this in this sort of technology uh because it's pulsed when i said directed pulsed microwave energy pulsed means very very short bursts of energy and for that you don't need that high energy source we the government does not tell us whether they even know the source of this uh, uh, energy. However, if you look at the history, they've done microwave research since the night, since the 60s. And there's several uh, projects that they involved in that they know the effect of. Um, including the weapons that would produce Havana syndrome. So when U.S. government says, we just don't know what it is, that's a joke. Not only that, you can't say we don't know what it is. Imagine the, the diplomats and the spies, if they were left alone by our U.S. government, and, and including me, you know, a civilian with this uh, uh, condition, but the U.S. government didn't tell these spies and diplomats that they know what it is. Instead, they sent them to doctors and, and you know, to multiple locations and sent those doctors on a wild goose chase so they would find what, it, what this uh, energy is and 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 how it affects the brain while our government has these weapons know know how it works and they simply they cannot come to this realization that it's it is time to come clean to our own citizens and say yes we know Yes, we possess, and let's have a public conversation about it, because we we, we have it. China ha has it. Uh, the Russians have it. Several uh, uh, other um, uh, nations uh, sort of play with it. It is it is only a matter of fact when it is when it becomes obvious that we've been sitting it. 
for a long time. Okay, Len. Well, I really appreciate you talking to us and I, I wish you better health and I, I sincerely hope you do find the answers you're looking for. I mean, hopefully in a, um, that's sooner rather than later. Maybe you can just tell our um, listeners and viewers where they can find out more information about you and, and your story. I, I'm on Twitter under P. Sardonicus. I have a um, Substack, uh, Len Bear MD. Uh, also a YouTube channel, Len Bear MD. Um, and um, targetedjustice.com is the nonprofit organization that uh, just filed the lawsuit. And you can um, follow it uh, by signing to their newsletter or also their Substack. Uh, target that's, that's great Len thank you very much for your time I appreciate it I enjoyed speaking to you likewise thank you very much all the best thank you wow that's a lot uh, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it Sean how are you yeah fantastic huge thank you to Stephen Knight for co-hosting this evening all of his links are in the description box so please go down and support his work and subscribe to his YouTube channel he has been yeah, on the it. ball, on the ball with these guests, and huge thank you to you viewers as well for all your questions and your input this evening. And we're going to go over to Patreon. Over on Patreon, we got are the moon landings faked? The Marilyn Manson latest, and Rachel Vaughan, who was subjected to heinous abuse as a kid. I can't get into the extremity of it on this channel. But suffice it to say that our previous interview with her was banned from this channel. <laughs> so um, there we go. And the links for the Patreon are in the description box. Massive thanks to Ash as well for organizing the show. So I hope to see some of you in about 10 minutes on Patreon. Cheers, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Good evening. How are you, sir? All right. I guess you guys just let anybody in here. That, I, I ask the same question when they bring me back every week, so don't worry about it. That is a, an impressive desk and, and book set up there. For, Thank uh, you. For those on the uh, on the video stream. Gentlemen, maybe you could just take it in terms to, to terms to quickly introduce yourself and, and let us know what it is you do. Sure. I'm Eric Hunley. I'm a serial YouTuber who still has a day job with uh, four channels. Yeah, Eric Hunley, America's Untold Stories, Nate and Eric, and Layback News. Excellent. So um, we're here to discuss the um, Marilyn Manson case, aren't we? And it seemed like, up until yesterday at least, that he was approaching the end of his, his very public legal woes and lawsuits uh, around the, the issue of you know sexual assault uh, and, and rape and things like that. But we, there was some breaking news yesterday. Maybe you can go into detail about what we, what's just been revealed. <laughs> a never-ending cycle of accusers who are crawling out of the woodwork. Um, I'm going to let Steve take over quickly, but in my humble opinion, it's a case of statute of limitation laws that have been changed here in America, and now we have a rash of people who are saying, hey, let me get into some action here. We did a movie in 1965, Romeo and Juliet. I felt uncomfortable. I'm suing you for $500 million. One half of an Alex Jones. And 
right now you have that. Um, Steven Tyler had an accuser coming out. This is Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. And coincidentally, we got the big, fat, juicy target of Marilyn Manson. So we have somebody coming out here with the same lawyer as the Steven Tyler accuser. Right. I'm, I'm sensing some mild skepticism on your part in regards to these accusers. Would I be correct there? I, I think it's fair to say. Let me um, read a statement from the Steven, Steven Tyler lawsuit. I am making this statement because at the age of 65, I have discovered that through a recent change in the law, I have a new opportunity to take legal action against those that abused me in my youth. Steve, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this law, because a lot of people would be looking at certainly the Marilyn Manson thing and seeing that this occurred in 1995, and they would think, well, the statutes of limitations have expired. So maybe explain what this government new, uh, sorry, this new legislation introduced by the governor is and, and what that opens up the doors to. Sure. Well, people would think that. I would have thought it. And it was the truth until a few years ago. And then after Me Too, a lot of the states started passing not only increased statute limitations for current cases, but also what they're calling look back provisions where they maybe give you a year or something and you can your case is revived no matter how old it is. They did that in California and then they've done that in New York and they opened a window at the end of November that's one year. And if you were assaulted over the age of 18, you can bring your case no matter how old it is. And so this new case, this new Jane Doe case is in New York and it's brought under their statute. So every state is different. So there's 50 possibilities and they're all doing this all somewhat differently. But it's in New York, they had over 10,000 cases filed when they opened a look back window for minor uh, accusations. And so this will also, I'm sure, drive a wave of cases as they are across the country. So, I mean, the, this accuser, I mean, you this just described to Jane Doe there, is anonymity granted solely on the basis that this is a crime, an alleged crime of uh, sexual nature? That helps because typically the law and the courts do not favor anonymous parties uh, due to the fact that proceedings should be public. Um, however, when it's a sexual assault victim or an alleged one, and also the person says, look, I'm, I'm afraid, as this person has done, she said, I'm afraid of the fans, they're harassing me, they may hurt me or my family, she says, I'm not saying that's true. And also that you know she could be humiliated by the process of this. So she's asking for permission to proceed Jane Doe. The court has not ruled on it yet, although I think they'll grant it. Actually, this morning, the judge that was assigned to the case recused himself. So they're going to have to assign the case already, even though it only started Monday, uh, to, to some other judge to make that decision. But probably she will succeed as the final case left against Manson in California is also a Jane Doe case, and she succeeded in that there. But didn't they have provisions, Steve? Because there's a small problem with the Jane Doe thing, like – I need to go talk to witnesses to say, hey, uh, I wasn't there that day. Did you ever see me with Jane Doe? And then Steve will say, who's Jane Doe? And I'll say, I can't say who it is, but did you see me with this mystery person? Right. So let's let's say a case has a named plaintiff like Bianco. You can still have a confidentiality order and or agreement that says that, look, we'll trade information, but you can't distribute it to people. So in the Jane Doe case in California, the court finally did rule she could stay anonymous, but they also had a confidentiality order. And Manson said, listen, if I can't tell Eric, like you said, the witnesses who she is, how can I ask um, the, the questions I need to ask to defend myself? So they have amended that order, as the Manson case has pointed out just a few days ago, that as long as the witness is agreeing to be bound by the confidentiality order that would cover the material anyway, they can disclose the plaintiff. Uh, 
uh, to whoever that witness is. And Manson knows who these people are, too, as well as a defendant. And the public, by the way, the names. I'm not going to say the name just because I want to cover myself and not exacerbate problems. But the name is out there. It's on Twitter. It's very public. Uh, this person has been shopping the story for a while. Okay. Yes. Right. Now, it's not the way she puts it, but I, but from <laughs> Eric's perspective, that is the way a lot of people feel about it. But yeah, okay. she, she said something different to the court, of course. Okay, that's interesting. So, I mean, maybe just backing up a little bit to the, the previous case with Esme Bianco and the, the, you know, the Game of Thrones actress, that one was settled. Now, a lot of people, the layman, uh, people like me, people who are not versed in, in lawfare in this sense, will look at a settlement like that and take it as a tacit admission of guilt, a way of just making this whole thing go away. Maybe you could just explain why that's not necessarily always the case and why sometimes it actually may make more sense to settle these things, even if you are innocent. Well, there's probably three things about that. And the first is in most court systems now, including federal court, you have to go to mediation. So these parties were ordered to attend a mediation by January 27th of this year, and they did it. And apparently the mediator did a good job because they got it settled promptly after that. So that encourages more settlements than in the old days where you wouldn't want to be the one to blink first to agree to mediation. You, you have to do it. And then secondly, uh, most cases end in mediation, almost all of them. A trial is a rare minority of, of cases that are filed. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Obviously, if you're the defendant, you may want to settle this purely because of how much you're paying your attorneys. Maybe you want to settle it because of how much you're paying your attorneys. And there may be a jury. Could, who knows what a jury will do? There's always a chance you'll lose. So there's some value to a case. And maybe also you did everything they said. So we don't know because we don't know any of the terms of the settlement. But but I think probably Manson got the better of it, even though it's all uh, unknown at this point, but it's not an admission on either side. It's not an admission by her. I had no merit. And it's not an admission by Manson that, Hey, I did some of this stuff that was bad. It's just the parties making an agreement between the two of them, probably both unhappy that let's, let's end this and move on with their lives. And, and the short statement that they did give out doesn't tell us anything other than that the case is over. Yeah, usually when they release a statement in regards to a settlement, there is some acknowledgement that um, there was no wrongdoing or there's, there's some kind of definitive statement on on what happened. But this was completely void of any corroborating facts or information as to you know in regards to the amount of settlement. I mean, what what was your perception of this this settlement, Eric? Well, there's another factor. Steve's kind of leaving out a a giant one you could drive a truck through, oh, which is this lawyer, um, Jay Elwanger for Esme Bianco was also the lawyer for Ashley Morgan Smith line who tried to fire him last year. Her words case went, I don't know if you can say the word, but tits up, I think is what you say in England. And she wound up abandoning the case because there's no settlement there. She said, boop out. And the court dismissed that. So now Esme Bianco, her lawyer, there's not much of a case sitting there. So I don't know why she settled. Maybe it's because there was no case left. Maybe it was shredded to pieces with Ashley Morgan Smith line going by the lawyer that was shared on both cases in a weird predicament publicly, because again, Ashley Morgan Smith line said that, and I'll be the first to admit that she's not a, she's not Steve's favorite witness. I'm sure if he was in court, he would probably call anybody else. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's this obviously there's perception and uh, there's a sort of cynicism to a lot of these historical allegations that are only coming to light now. And obviously, this is a man of wealth, a, a man of um, popularity. He is a big target, and if you know, these notoriety people... would be even better to say, because look uh, at him. That's sure. part of why. Look at the guy. Oh my God, he's a horror figure. Of course, he did it. Yeah, he's he's playing the part of a pantomime villain for sure. Now that there is that aspect of it, and I I do think even though these are very serious allegations, and you know you, there is room for empathy, compassion, I do think sure. you have to weigh up the evidence and and then be as rational as you can because it is that serious. Now uh, on the flip side of that coin, this also might be an opportunity for women who and you know miners at the time have genuinely been seriously sure. harmed and, and had abuse and this in i suppose the me too era when people are feeling more confident in speaking up they've mm -hmm. seen this as their opportunity to get actual justice for the the wrongdoing they faced i agree that this is the problem i have is there a criminal complaint in this uh steve no there are no um she said that she was if she's the person we're thinking it is, then maybe she's talked to law enforcement, but there, there are no charges on any of these cases that I'm aware of. This, this is why I, I this is just a civil lawsuit. That's why I start to get triggered, Steve. Is I, is I, I see it's like, oh, it, it's immediately going to cash. And uh, it's like if something's happened, I want to put away. Okay. I, I don't want somebody running around who has done something. I would love to see a criminal charge out there if there's actually a criminal charge. If it starts to look like, oh, there's a little window here, and 35, 40 years later, it, it, it becomes my credit, um, credulity starts to get stretched. Now, I understand not, somebody being long, young and all of that, but it starts to get stretched. That's all. Not to counter that point, but just from the lawyer standpoint to, to also put this one out there adjacent to it. It's hard to, or maybe impossible in some cases, to retroactively change a criminal statute of limitations to say, we're, uh, mm. you were off the hook, but we're going to reverse it and make it to where you can be charged for something you did 50 years ago, even though the statute of limitations used to be five. But for civil cases, it's kind of up to each state whether they can do it or not. And so that's that's one reason why, to, you know, to be fair to the other side of this, they may can make uh, relief available on a civil side that they cannot constitutionally do on the criminal side. So, so maybe you, the person was terrible, but you know, you can't go after them with the DA, but now you can at least civilly. So, I mean, just so I've understood that correctly, there may be a situation in a state where it's perfectly legal, certainly for a limited opportunity to bring a civil court case for something that happened in the nineties, but not necessarily file criminal charges retrospectively. Is that, have I understood that correctly? Yes, or at least to change the law to allow it to be criminally charged. That's tougher for them to do retroactively than it is just for a civil claim money damages that, because it's criminal punishment. And, of course, right. it depends on the state because different so, states have different. Like uh, I think in North Carolina, there's no statute of limitations, right? Yeah, it's for felonies, it's the reverse. But let's say you're in a state that had the same statute of limitations, criminal and civil, of 10 years and they wanted to have these old claims, they could do it, say, make it a 50-year statute going backwards, change it retroactively for civil, but they couldn't do it for criminal. If it was older than 10 years, you're off the hook. I mean, this is interesting in a sense because, as we know, social norms change. Interactions, mm -hmm. especially between the sexes, are something that hopefully progress. Sometimes they can regress. And what may have been seen as socially acceptable uh, in the 90s is possibly frowned upon now. Could we see people bringing these suits for 
things that were perfectly acceptable at the time, but now in the current day are, are deemed uh, beyond the pale. Sure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, Marilyn Manson looks like settling for him on the Esme Bianco case was the the good thing for him to do. But has that mm-hmm. sort of inadvertently opened him up now to more lawsuits? Are people seeing that as an opportunity for them? Well, I mean, I don't, I'm going to say no, because plenty were coming at four before. I, I think it, I think it was a change in law and coincidentally you had the same firm that's hitting two rock stars that, you know, ties up with this opening of the law. There were plenty of people who were accusing a lot of cases have been dismissed or failed to meet the standards or everything else. I think Manson was smart to settle where he could because this is this is the nightmare, and I am somewhat sympathetic. Now, if he's proven guilty, then not oh, too bad. I hope he goes broke. But what a nightmare. Every time you turn around, there's somebody else who's coming forward with something. And how how do you how do you live with that? So I understand where he's like, okay, let's get rid of these so I can focus on my lawsuit for defamation against Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore for running my name through the ground. So I think that that was the strategy. This is a wrench that has been thrown into the works. I'm not going to pretend it's not. It's, it is kind of a a dystopian nightmare. He's like, okay, everything's closing up. Boom. I can settle and go forward. And then, hi, I'm another lawyer. (laughs) I suppose as well. I mean, uh, accusations or you know crimes of a, of a sexual nature are bad enough in any context i'm, not, I'm sure we all agree on that but there is something sure. about accusations and there's something about the crimes permitted against minors that makes things so much more worse uh, and it certainly makes it worse in the mind of the public to the point where even if he comes through as not guilty or he, he manages to clear his name in a, in the legal sense there's always this perception of no smoke without fire and he'll be Bingo. tarnished with that for the rest of his life i mean we saw this with michael jackson as well is it is it over for him regardless of what the legal outcome is i i i i just did this with steve last week i feel like he's already lost in the sense of um he's not a young guy he has a pretty limited window for his particular career with the act that he has. It's it's not a, you know, it, I know Alice Cooper's still out there and rocking to a degree, but it'd be like, here comes Manson with a cane. It's just not going to fly. And I, I just feel like he's trying to cut his losses and, and move forward and maybe, you know, do other things like act and be in movies and stuff. Right now, though, everything's been taken away. He's lost all the record deals, all the acting opportunities everything else so i i don't know i i i'm just i'm glad i'm not in his shoes so i mean steve that's an interesting point to pick up on because before anyone's either convicted anything or any anything's ever proven in court uh em- employers in in Mar- manson's case which would be the record label or any, any film deals he had in place or any book deals anything like that, that would be instantly withdrawn and cancelled just on the strength of public allegations now in your mind is that the kind of the allegations so serious that that's merited or do you think employers and, and professionals and colleagues should wait until the facts are established in a legal sense before they essentially destroy somebody's career? Well, you know, I, I think you should be innocent until proven guilty. But if I were setting an in-house counsel and I had artist B who wasn't being sued all over the place, whether he's innocent, maybe he's even a worse person, but artist A who is, 
uh, I'd be maybe more worried about artist A, even if they are innocent and, and say, man, I'm really sorry for you, but let's go do business somewhere else would be perhaps the advice to my client if they wanted to stay out of it. And, and for instance, in this new Jane Doe case, the other cases really were centered against Manson. This case has a lot in it, reading it as a lawyer, that sounds bad for Manson, but a lot of it to me is targeted to try and make sure they get the record labels promoters into this case, which could be a pool of money, of course, which if you're the plaintiff's attorney is what you want. But I, I would be worried if I were them. I don't know their business that well, but I would certainly be cautious about getting tied in for any kind of vicarious liability for the, the acts that I'm working with. Yeah, that would concern me. And I think from what Eric's saying, that is what's happened to Manson, if that's correct, that he has lost this business. So, Eric, what's next with this with this case? Where, when what dates are significant here? When can we when will we find out more information? When will it progress forward? Uh, Steve probably knows more than I do. We work with somebody. I want to shout them out really quickly. But um, the Manson cases is pulling documents all the time. I haven't even had time to go through them. And she shares them a lot with Steve. So the Manson cases on YouTube, everybody check that out. And obviously Steve's channel. But I don't know dates as of this point. I mean, literally, this just dropped. And then when you have the judge recusing himself, which hopefully we'll figure out what's going on there. Maybe the judge feels like I do. And he's like, you know what? Somebody else here, anybody else here, please take this case. Just please. I don't want to see him anymore. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know the reason, but that would be my theory. And I believe, Steve, as well, the person who's taken up the job of representing the uh, the alleged victim is actually someone who's got a lot of experience with victims of the Catholic Church. I mean, that's that's very serious business. That's someone who probably understands sexual abuse of minors better than most people. I mean, is is that is it a case of you will always find someone to represent you in the legal sphere? Or is the fact that this person who's got all this experience is representing her, is this indicative of uh, some kind of case that she has? Well, you know, in the U.S., with the contingency system that we have, the, the plaintiff's lawyers are really the first gatekeepers for the legal system because they're going to invest time and effort in it. And so you need some merit to your case, of course, and so you convince the other side to pay. And then you need somebody on the other side who can pay the bill. Otherwise, what are you doing other than, you know, it would be pointless. It's not a business. So I assume this person assessed there's a solvent entity on the back end, promoter, Manson, and then has enough evidence to move forward the case, whether it's a strong case or a weak case, I don't have any idea. I've seen cases get stronger. I have also seen people walk back. Everything they told me in the office was 100% fact. When they were confronted with the other side, they, they folded. I'm not saying that's the case here, but I'm saying it's just too early to know. But but you do kind of develop maybe, say, a specialty like this where you do a lot of the same kind of cases. And, and so they probably have a sense of, I can get this much money probably out of this type of defendant in this situation. I mean, that's what they're paid to kind of estimate what these cases are worth. So presumably they're not doing it, you know, just for the cause they're doing it also to, to make money. That's their business. Okay. So this may be somewhat of a curveball, and I appreciate you both come here today to speak about Marilyn Manson, but I can't help feel the niggling temptation to bring up Alex Jones as he, he was name dropped uh at the start of the conversation (laughs) now i'm just wondering (laughs) yeah eric this is on you i'm afraid um but i was just wondering how much of you to follow the uh, alex jones sandy hook ruling uh, and feel free to see not at all if it's something you don't want to talk about i i followed it to a degree and i have um really close friends who are very deep into it including one who works for alex jones to set expectations so um i feel this way about alex jones the verdict was beyond ridiculous 
a billion dollars is ludicrous. Now, do I think defamation may have occurred? Sure. It, it, it may well have occurred. I don't know every little detail. I know there's some problems with the witnesses, different things. But let's just say he's 100% guilty. He didn't do a billion dollars worth of damage. Uh, I, that right there takes the entire case and throws it out the window. If you said that he got hit with like 20 million, 50 million, okay, well, I could sort of see it. But think about that for a second. His verdict, $100 billion, is the largest verdict in history. It is, it is, what is it? Bigger than the tobacco companies, I believe. I, I'd have to look at it, but I mean, the, the numbers are so staggering that you have like literally children who, have really bad things happen. I know this is going on YouTube someday and they don't, they'll get like a hundred thousand, 500,000, a million or whatever, a billion dollars. And I don't think people can quite understand. Well, I'll, I'll go to the lawyer here, Steve, a billion dollars. Is that a normal verdict for defamation? Well, so the two aspects, of course, Alex Jones was one was when he wasn't allowed to present his defense. And that has that a legal too. angle to it that he Huge. disagrees with. But I read the orders on that because that's what excited me was, oh, we got a legal problem. The second one is the jury verdicts. And as I said a little while ago, a big motive to settle cases, take the Alex Jones, which I would say is a runaway verdict. And that's not defending Jones. Take the OJ case where they let him go. You never know what a jury will do. And so, the, yeah, to me, the verdict is, again, not, not defending what Jones did or didn't do, although I did see some of it. Um, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's it's absurd. The verdict is absurd. Yeah, and I agree with you on the money. And to be honest, that's a figure so large, I can't actually fit it into my head. Um, so, I mean, I suppose my um, interest in the whole thing was how it how it matches on to the First Amendment protections, because it, it seems like given the American has a, a wonderful First Amendment and, uh, and freedom of expression, uh, to a to a high bar, and you know, I mean, the UK can't even shine a light on the speech you, the Americans have in, in terms mm -hmm. of protections. Uh, I'm just, just wondering, even if Alex Jones is a million times wrong, and I I believe he absolutely is, um, how has what he said tran transgressed the the First Amendment protections? Well, and what's interesting here is they didn't have to show that because that Jones, yeah, Jones in Texas and Connecticut the judges almost around the same time uh, defaulted him. And they used this basically what's the worst sanction you can do, which is striking his defenses, striking his answers. So when the trial occurred, they, he was deemed to already be liable. The first amendment was gone at that point. He was, there was no art talking about the first amendment. Yeah, it was, was a penalty phase. We went right to penalty, penalty phase. That's wow. right. So now <laughs> you're guilty. That's why I say that the, <laughs> the legal issue for me was where the judge is making the right decisions, because that's the worst sanction you can do is to either throw somebody's lawsuit out or throw somebody's defense out. That's what the worst you can do in civil case, kind of. And they did that. Now they had their reasons for it and all that. And you can agree or disagree. It's there, you know, it's a lot of lawyer stuff in there. But that's what happened. And the judges felt that was the right thing to do because they said he had a pattern of discovery abuse that was inhibiting the plaintiff's cases. They'd done other sanctions, they'd done other penalties, they didn't find them sufficient. Whether you agree with it or not, they struck his ability to bring up the First Amendment. And I would have rather seen the trial involve the First Amendment because that's what the public was wondering is what, what are the parameters? What can you say and how wrong can you be? And so that the money doesn't relate to any notion of the first amendment because he was deemed liable at the time the jury sat down in the box. I can yeah. I can honestly say I was confused about it all before. And now I feel somewhat more informed thanks to you two. And now I know a little bit more. I'm even more confused. Um, so maybe, maybe it's dark. It, it's a dark issue with, with him and the whole verdict. And again, I, I just want to separate, 
whatever was said or not said, let's just assume he's guilty, okay? Guilty as hell. But he never had a jury who was able to do this. This is the same guy, and I've, I've said it a million times. First, it was Alex Jones. He was the first guy canceled from everything. He was pulled out of um, iTunes. They literally changed podcasting to exclude him so he couldn't show up in podcast players. Podcasting is an open platform. Think about this for a second. Canceled from Twitter. Canceled everywhere. Alex Jones is the first guy. He is quite literally Voldemort. And now you're saying, okay, so we canceled him everywhere. He's silenced in that regard, right? Now we go to trial and we say, oh, no, you can't plead your case. You're already guilty. And by the way, if you try to defend yourself during this penalty phase, you will be held in contempt of court. It is a really dark scenario. So happy to talk about it sometime. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, um, is there an aspect of public emotion that's played into this? Given oh, for sure. That, yeah, and 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 it um it would it surprised me that there aren't sort of um, safeguarding aspects of of you know uh, legal uh, proceedings to guard against that kind of thing. You know, uh, emotive um, responses and verdicts and things like that. Well, there there are, and and say for instance in Texas, the fact that his answer was struck, he can appeal that. And if he's not satisfied with the money, he can go up to the court of appeals and say, hey, the judge should never have struck my answer. So he'll have another panel to look at it independently and say, did she exceed her authority or not? And if she did, they'll throw the verdict out. Then also in Texas, they have a limit on punitive damages. And I don't know whether they finally ruled on it or not, but usually they can only be X amount over what the, the compensatory damages were. So the actual damages you, you suffered. They, they the ruled on it. Hit. It went to like five million. It's a Connecticut yeah, that's one what, that is the billion. Right. A Connecticut has different rules. So some states have reeled in this American notion of uh, Wild West jury verdict. You know, let's let's uh, uh, hold up the train and stuff and see how much money we can get. Texas has limited that. Connecticut was was not so much. So I suppose um, swinging background to Marilyn Manson, the the least interesting subject of our conversation today, it seems. Um, <laughs> In terms of uh, this having occurred in the 90s, I think in, in general, sexual assaults and, and, and things like that are quite difficult to prove. Uh, it's certainly uh, diff more difficult to approve when they're this much of a historic case. Is, is, it, is this going to be very difficult for this person, even if they are 100% genuine, to make their case? Uh, well, I from guess what I'm... I understand, it's the feedback I've seen, and these people have been pretty reliable, I think Steve would agree. I don't know. They're quoting things like Manson lyrics and songs and images, like one of his tattoos, which actually was a, a I might have been a French Long movie or something like that. And it's kind of this old trope of let's roll out all the dark stuff about Manson that's part of his act and then say, look, he's telling you himself. But that's right. not really evidence, in my opinion. Well, now, I, that's why I say I think part of this case is a lot of that is put out there to say, hey, the record companies knew what he was like. Now, it also has the benefit for her of making Manson look bad, but you're trying to make the record company liable, too. And so showing that they should have known he was like this is, is, is part of her lawsuit. All right, gentlemen. Well, I've, this has flown by. I've really enjoyed speaking to you both. Maybe, uh, Eric, you can tell us where we can find more of the work you do uh, and Steve as well. Sure. Just my name, Eric Hunley. Look Good. And, Succinct. And I like it. Southern Law. Wonderful. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed speaking to you both. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, sir. Take care. Yep. Well, it's, um, 
it's lovely to have some incredibly uh, informed uh, individuals to talk about something. I always learn a lot. Uh, I'm going to fully admit now that uh, the legal sphere, especially American law, not my specialty. But um, if you ask inquisitive enough questions, you come away with a little something for sure. So it might be worth you guys uh, letting me know in the chat if you <laughs> if you think this is going to go away from Marilyn Manson, is going to clear his name, that's a one. If you think this is going to uh, be the final nail in the coffin for him, uh, that's a two in the chat. See where we are with Manson. I'm I'm kind of apathetic to him as a as a human. I used to enjoy some of his music as a kid. Kind of feel like I've grown out of it. I might I might be out the loop, but I'm not entirely sure he's produced anything worth listening to in the last 20 years, except for a tainted love cover. Don't shoot me if you disagree. Like I say, I might be completely out the loop. So what I'm saying is this isn't coming from a place of fandom with him or a place of animosity. Um, but there is something is there is something strange about perception because just from a visceral level, just from the way he looks uh, and his, his, his persona, you, you're more likely to treat him less favorably in your mind. I think certainly people who are not part of that world just manifest as a rather dark and scary character. And a lot of what he says is theatrical as well, is said for effect, is said to be controversial, uh, which will not help his public perception in things like this. And now there's also the flip side of the coin. You look at very powerful, successful men. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Stephen. Good to see you. Excellent. And where are you joining us from today? From Australia, it's still dark outside. It's very oh, early. Oh wow! Okay, so it's on my bucket list of places to visit for sure. So I'll have to get some recommendations off you sometime. But um, maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Uh, let our audience and um, chat members know uh, know your story. Sure. Yeah. So I um, basically suffered some pretty horrible abuse as a child. I was sex trafficked in South Australia in the 1970s and 1980s by my father and a fairly large pedophile ring, which is still operating, those that are still alive. My father died in 2017, so I can speak pretty freely about him. Um, that involved some pretty horrific abuse. I did come in, um, come on and speak to Sean uh, back in 2020, I believe it was. Um, uh, but sadly, that, that interview had to be struck down, like a lot of Sean's interviews that covered um, ritualistic abuse. So uh, basically, since um, 2018, when I went public, I've, I've been on social media speaking about my abuses because I could never get my father um, incarcerated for what he did to me or my two siblings. My two siblings have also been fighting. My brother, Andrew McIntyre, had a very prominent pedophile put away. He's now on his third conviction. Um, and that was a very close friend of our father and another of our father's friends, John Pike, is now serving 18 years for child, for child rape, basically. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's really clearly evidence that my father was involved with the pedophile ring, but he was never charged, even though he was being investigated when he died, because I'd finally found the right politician to have him investigated, to force the, the South Australian police to investigate. And that's one of the main issues we have in my country, is if the police don't want to investigate one of the brothers, because my father was a Freemason, you won't get any luck, you won't get anywhere with a, with an um an investigation or charges being laid down. The main reason I wanted to come on today is one of the reasons or one of the excuses that the Major Crime Department used in my state to ignore my allegations was that I was told that the underground edifices below my father's um, Edwardstown property in South Australia apparently didn't exist. And so for that reason, I was discredited. 
I've just spent, well, I spent two and a half years of all of my spare time that I could find with the help of some incredible researchers to prove the existence of, of the areas underneath the house where I was abused and the tunnels that I was trafficked through. Can you, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, can you, can you describe these these tunnels for us and what, what exactly did these look like? So there's three different types in the particular area where I grew up and I was being trafficked. So there were the 1938 mandate, uh, pre-World War II mandate tunnels that had to be dug. So there was a mandate in Australia that tunnels, trenches, bunkers had to be built within 20 feet of the back door of any house, meeting place or business. Um, so it was, there was a crazy amount of digging going on in 1938 um, leading up to the, the Second World War. Um, basically, I mean, the amount of tunnels and shelters that are proven is really, really extensive. And where I grew up in Edwardstown, it was a very industrial area. So there were a hell of a lot of um, tunnels built. But basically, um, my father built his house over the top of what was once an old Wonderlooks um, terracotta brick kiln. And because the clay had been dug out, it was built at a lower level. Later on, Phil was brought in and covered up all the kilns in the area and they became cold stores. And then when the 1938 mandate came through, they were turned into telecommunications bunkers or just bunkers. And they had tunnels built because there was a really large workforce in the area and they needed bunkers. So my father built his house on top of that, created a, a hidden cellar. And from the bunker, there were tunnels and the tunnels can either be those particular tunnels. Um, there's also commissary tunnels or telecommunications tunnels that are under the footpath of every main street and main road um, in Australia, basically. So that's like Telstra or Telecom is our telecommunications, our main one here. Um, they're quite large. So it depends on how many of the metal plates are on top of the pit to, to, to find out basically how big the pits are. Some of them are closed off, but the ones when I was walking through them as a child were not. Um, and there's also the stormwater drains, the stormwater tunnels that are in the area as well. And they all link up in certain ways. So um, if we were walking down into the into the stormwater tunnels, we'd have to step down from one of the other tunnels because obviously the water runs through. Um, yeah, some of the tunnels, I mean, a lot of the tunnels did have a bit of water in the bottom. And so it's taken quite a long time to get all of the evidence together to prove that these these tunnels exist. And they, I, I believe that you know, there's a lot of survivors of these tunnel trafficking experiences that are discredited. And that's the whole point of having them taken through tunnels and abused in underground spaces, like in the McMartin preschool case, so that the, the victims can be um, easily discredited as far as the authorities are concerned. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this is obviously very harrowing stuff and it's obviously something you feel, you know, compelled to talk about. And, um, and it's very, it's, deeply personal and it's very peculiar of me to be sat here asking you questions about and I want to make sure that your your sort of uh, barriers are respected and I'm not wanting to push too far in one direction so I mean I'm sure you've had plenty of experience with this um, so far um, I mean maybe you can tell us a little bit about where where you were taken where, where how far did these tunnels go in terms of distance and for to what purpose where would be the end goal to be taken so I mean the commissary tunnels, like I said, are under every street, main street and main road. So some of the some of the treks that we went on felt like hours. I was and thinking about the, the age I was from from a toddler. Um, so very small. My father would carry me through right up until I was about I reckon it stopped when I was I'd say mid teens. So, you know, it, it's um, 
some 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 of the time it took a long time some of the time he'd actually put me in a, a small wheelbarrow very small wheelbarrow one of those ones that you see ornamental ones in the garden and he'd bury me three because I was either too drugged too tired too small to walk myself so that gives you a bit of an idea of the, the sort of size of the tunnels these weren't really really tiny some of them were really quite large um, some of the ones that I've proven I've, I've actually put out a pdf recently which I'm sharing on my telegram channel um, that's tme forward slash Rachel Vaughan um, and I'll post that up again once this um, live is over. Basically, I've, I've shown all of the schematics. I've shown um, 1955 titles proving the tunnels close by to my house. Um, there was one that was unearthed recently. They, they raised the house to the ground next door to where I grew up and you could see the tunnel there. Friends of mine went in and took footage, which was incredible, incredibly cathartic for me to have that proof. So they're everywhere, basically, um, especially in Adelaide because of that mandate. The mandate was um, Australia-wide, but, yeah, you've, you've got a lot of hidden spaces. Wow. What, what must that feel like then when you're you're adamant about the existence of these tunnels, you know for a fact these exist, and you're constantly told they don't exist, then all of a sudden we have the the physical evidence. What What is that feeling like for you? Pretty amazing. Pretty incredible. Yeah, so I put out a video recently sort of basically going through all of the evidence that I have that's on my um, BitChute and Rumble channels, just look up my name. Um, and I, basically the reason I came on to here today is I want to get as many people out there as possible looking at this because I know, you know, I, I watch a lot of stuff on tunnels on various um, platforms and a lot of people in the comments say, oh, we have, we've never seen any evidence and where's the proof and who knows where, where are these children that are supposedly being brought out. So that's why I really wanted to get this out there as far and wide as possible so people know it's real. It really is real. And, and looking into some of the, the testimony you've given before, you, you've said not only was this a case of trafficking, but there was also murder of children involved. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to, to what extent? I mean, how, how many children are we talking? Well, I saw, I saw six murders as a child. Um, one of them was quite horrific. Well, sorry, they're all horrific, but, you know, one involved a baby and a bonfire, I mean, and a ritual and, a, you know, 50 adults present, you know, just horrific stuff. Um, one was a child that I watched. I had to actually be very in very close proximity, proximity to a child being murdered by my father, whom he told me if, if he didn't murder her, he was going to have to murder me. So, you know, and I had to get to know this child and take food to her and just horrific um, Sorry to interrupt. Were, they, were these children, uh, children from other families? Were these uh, relatives? Or, I mean, where, where did they come from? I believe the baby was taken from an unwed, unwed mother. There, there was a family member who had a parade of underage pregnant girls as her maid. Um, you know, in in the eighties, that was still going. In the nineties, I believe she still had these very young girls that were pregnant in her vicinity. Um, so I think that baby probably didn't have a birth certificate um, and wasn't registered. Um, the, the children, so my older brother and sister um, have made very pertinent allegations about a very famous case called the Beaumont children abduction, which happened in 1966, where three children were taken from the same family. Now that's been happening in Australia forever to our indigenous people. They take their children all the time and all of them at once. But this is the first time in 66 that it had happened to a white family 
So that's a that's quite a famous case, supposedly unsolved. We know where the remains are. They're on uh, one of our father's former properties in Stansbury. There's a petition, 35,000 signatures. Police won't touch it. Why? Why is that? I mean, surely that's that's interference with the justice process. What what sort of um, justifications have they provided for refusing to look into this? Uh, just any kind of um, discrediting that they can possibly do. I mean, it's just it's just the usual thing. But my father was an ASIO operative, which is our security. Um, so, so it's like you're MI6. So he he worked for ASIO and he blackmailed a lot of people. My brother was waiting for 10 years to have an interview at the major crime department about his um, witness um, experience for the, the day the Beaumont children were brought back to my father's property in Edwardstown, the one I've been talking about with the tunnels. They were brought back in the boot of a car and they were deceased. And my father has admitted to this in filmed footage from 2015. When he died, it was released um, publicly um, and still they won't, they won't touch his properties. They won't look at them because of the... And so as I was saying, my brother waited 10 years for an interview. And the only thing that the major crime detectives wanted to ask him about was the bitumized milk canisters. Milk canisters used to be quite large, apparently. And my father had bitumized the outside of them and kept his blackmail material in there. And that was the only thing they wanted to know about because my father was a blackmailer. So he used me as a honeypot to blackmail people. Quite often when I was taken through the tunnels, it wasn't someone that was, you know, quite well, I was used in child rape material as well, but... It wasn't just that, you know, he was doing that. He was also filming me with men or women who were absolutely off their face. You know, they were completely inebriated. They were woken up for the photographs or the filming. They weren't really there. You know, I feel guilty about that because I was used to blackmail them, but I was only a child. So he had some pretty powerful people that didn't want his blackmail material coming out. I'm assuming some of them must still be alive. Well, I mean... Have any of the remains of these murdered children been recovered at all that you're aware of? The one I mentioned before, he was murdered very close to me that I had to get to know. Um, he was murdered in the underground um, cellar, the hidden cellar at Edwardstown. Her burial place was in the backyard and my father had put a slab of concrete over it and that was all dug up by the current owners in 2019. And I went there when I heard someone had told me that the jackhammers were hammering up the concrete. So I raced down from where I live and pleaded with them to stop, but they didn't. So I don't know. I don't know if they found her bones. If my father might have hooked them out from under the corner of the slab at some point and only left, you know, he wouldn't have been able to get everything out. So there would have been still some evidence there. They might not have found any big bones and thought, oh, well, this woman's just crazy. So and they wouldn't let me take any soil away. I, I, they put everything in a skip. <laughs> I, I tried to locate the skip so I could go through the remains or the the rubble. But it was an unmarked skip and I couldn't find where it had been taken. And, and in regards to these other remains that you've reported to the police to no action, uh, when you say you know where they are, do you know the general property or could you, if you had yeah. all the means in the world, you could you could literally pinpoint where they are and, and retrieve them? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, my brother and I were filmed standing on the position where, at the sinkhole, where the, bur the, the Beaumont children were buried. Exp so we know exactly... Explain to me what where the sinkhole is located and what, what a sinkhole is for people who might not be aware. All right. So a sinkhole is where um, this is in a limestone area. So sinkholes are where water runs through and it sort of breaks a hole in the limestone and then creates a little cave underneath. So, it you know, it can be still be quite strong above, but there's a hole that, that sort of hollows out a cave. And that usually can have a little tunnel that goes out to the, the ocean or, or wherever else it's going to be travelling. 
So that sinkhole is on um, my father's former property at um, McIntyre Place in Stansbury. Very easy to find. Uh, when my father's confession was aired on Thursday night on Channel 7 in Australia, they filmed the, the property and they showed an aerial shot of the sinkhole. It's very well known where it is. And so, I mean, we, we've got this location. We're saying there is the remains of murdered children there. And uh, uh, what sort, I mean, are there just, uh, are there, is there a response that, you know, we can't get to it, it's too much of a hazard, or are they outright trying to discredit your account? I mean, there must be some official reason they're giving. Well, basically, it's just being discredited. So um, I was told that the, the the places, like I said, at Edwardstown, where I was abused and where I was trafficked through, couldn't possibly exist, hence my making so much effort to prove that it does exist. But even now, that, that video that I've just um, released with all the evidence and the PDF of the evidence that I've released, because I've actually... In this PDF, I've actually named addresses where the bunkers are, where the tunnels lead from, and shown titles. So it's not, it's irrefutable, but they're still not acting. And I released that on the 8th of January. Are, are you familiar with the people who own this property now at all? Have you been in communication with them? With the two particular properties that I have the, um, I have a title for a, a railway terrace property that's just a couple of streets away from me, which shows the tunnel going towards where I grew up. And I have the, um, uh, title and the photographs of the tunnel for the two houses next door to where I grew up. So I I know I've confronted the current owners of the Edwardstown property where I grew up. Like I said, I've communicated with them and they were jackhammering up the evidence. Um, they don't want anything to do with it. I it, mean, I can understand it. They don't want to know that they've bought a murder house, but the house is collapsing because of the because of the cellar, and they they know that the shed's collapsing as well because they've complained about it to somebody who's who's relayed that to me. The, the, where the big shed is over the large brick kiln, these brick kilns, through my research, I've discovered only last about 100 years, and that brick kiln was built around the 1926 um, expansion of the Wunderlichs factory. So that's where the, the brick kilns were, were employed by. So it's going to collapse completely. So they, they're going to lose a lot of money on that house very soon anyway. Uh, it's They can't avoid it. Do you know anyone or in, or in contact with anyone who, who went through this, a similar ordeal to you can kind of corroborate a lot of what you're saying as well? Or do you, or do you feel like you're totally, totally alone in, in this fight at the moment? Oh, no, I know a lot of survivors. I mean, like, again, I've got my brother and sister who've also made allegations. So mm. they, we, you know, we were abused by, by a father and, and, you know, there's a lot of correlations there. But no, I, I know a great deal of people. Um, in my circles because I've been speaking about this publicly for so long a lot of survivors come forward and say you know you're the first person I heard talking about the tunnels yeah it's it's not unusual I mean it sounds it sounds almost um fruitless in, in the sense that you know the police won't cooperate the owners of the property aren't interested as far as you're concerned is that are they the only two options available to you is there not a third legal route is there not some other route you can go down to gain access or, or pursue this further or does it does it start and finish with the police i've done i've, I've contacted every authority you could possibly mm. contact state and federal um i have um, reach out to other agencies outside of Australia. I've done everything you can possibly do. I think I've, I think I worked out to about twenty different departments or, or authorities or seventy individuals in about twenty different departments, so state and federally. So I basically I'm just not going to shut up about it. <laughs> so anything I can do is just keep talking about it. 
yeah no that's uh yeah that's that's that sounds like the way forward for sure and i mean in, in terms of these 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 poor kids who, who were killed what what was the sort of justification i mean you, you'd mentioned the sort of ritualistic aspect so maybe you can explain a little bit about what what that involves yeah okay well hope people have got strong stomachs so there's a very weird occult beliefs around the reasons for these rituals to occur and for the um for the murders to occur um and this comes into the you know obviously the occults a lot of people they either they believe in an afterlife or they don't these individuals that that are abusing me and my father they believed in it so my father was a freemason he was a member of the golden dawn so he was a devotee of alistair crowley he was a rosicrucian um and a satanist so he fully believed in all of these things so they believed that if they kill a child it opens up a portal so that they can then call in or force in the demonic entities that they want to have power from. So that was part of it. Part of it also is it's blackmail. So those 50 people, those adults that, um, and there were nine of us kids or nine or 10 of us kids that were forced to sit down and watch this ritual where they, they killed this baby on a bonfire. Um, 50 adults present, they all know that they were there. They've all got this communal um, connecting blackmail on each other. So it's a way of controlling one another as well. So, I mean, why, why do you think as well? I mean, that 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 many people, adults no less, to to witness something as horrendous and horrible as that, and and to maintain a wall of silence all this long. I mean, we we generally find. I mean, is that that expression isn't really like three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead, and people might look at that and think fifty people. That's quite a mass conspiracy. Surely somebody just the weight of the guilt of it all. Would have gone to the authorities by now and made a confession or, or reported the truth why, why why hasn't that happened in your view it does happen but they get suicided so my sister claire also there's that's so there's a third sibling who was abused there's a third sibling of mine who witnessed what happened to the beaumont children the day they were brought back to our property she went to make well she made an appointment with the major crime department to tell them what she had witnessed because my sister Ruth had seen the children dead in the boot of the car. Our father made her look at them along with Claire. Ruth needed Claire to corroborate. Claire made an appointment in 2009. She was dead the next day. She supposedly had broken her own neck. So this is what happens. People go to speak and then they, they're, they're taken out. So, I mean, this this implies like a larger conspiracy. I think I think that's where maybe some people, I mean, I've, I've looked online and, and obviously with there's something so big and emotive there's, there are lots of people trying to discredit your your testimony and, and the things you said and uh, is it possible that they they may be with you up until a point and then as soon as the sort of conspiracy aspects of it and I, I'm, I'm fully aware it, to, to pull something like this off it would would uh, require a, a huge conspiracy but do you think that's where maybe some people uh their um credulity stretched a little bit well, the, the interesting thing about that is there is the family murders in South Australia where uh, this has already been proven that there's been ritualistic, sadistic mm. murders of boys who were left out to be found as well, which is an MO of my father. I believe he was a part of that, that group. So it's already been proved that that's happened in South Australia. So what I'm talking about is really not that far-fetched because <laughs> it's already well established and everybody's been terrorised by it. Yeah, I mean, I... I that's not necessarily the the um the the doubt worthy part i think i think it's the idea that anyone who might come forward to sort of uh, blow the lid off this would be in, in your words suicided which if, I, if i'm not mistaken that implies it wasn't really a suicide and that they were taken out am i getting the the correct implication yes. there 
Okay, so that that would that would sort of imply an even deeper, sinister involvement from sort of uh, you know government level, uh, perhaps to to make something like that happen. Is that is that what you yeah. think's happening? Yes, yes. So just another example. Um, uh, Doug Barr, our ex head of the Major Crime Department in South Australia, suicided in his closet. <laughs> in 2019 and i'm not laughing because that's funny i just think that that's a really good example of what happens so this is a freemason ritualistic murder i believe that's just my personal opinion i've written an article about that particular situation that's your ex-head of your major crime department taking his own life in his closet you know that that's he was gotten rid of i believe i believe Okay, so has anyone in the uh, intervening years uh, come forward and, and claim? Like, are there people who have, who have filed like missing cases of children come forward? I suppose what I'm trying to get my head around in terms of these ritualistic killings are these children being offered up by the parents, or are they being taken from the parents? That's a good question. I mean, I was I was being offered up by my father. I was being mm. used in that way. Um, I believe there are other children that I was being trafficked with that were being offered up. Well, I know that were being offered up by their own parents. So it's it's. A, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, I'm not making any disparaging statements about the Beaumont parents because that's another way that they've tried to discredit myself and my siblings over the years. Oh, you're pointing the finger at the parents. Not at all. Not at all. But it is a combination of the two. Either they're just stolen, or they're they're taken from situations where they never had a birth certificate in the first place. Or their parents hand them up, hand them over for it. So I mean, this is a lot of really, you know, dark and, and heavy stuff. That's so, oh, obviously I can't, I can't imagine uh, how you must feel about it. But I suppose what I'm interested in as well is what would, what would justice look like for you then in the end? I mean, obviously it feels like you know the perpetrators, those responsible, many of them are no longer around. Uh, what, what, what would justice be to you at this point? Acknowledgement from authorities that it's the truth. Um, and the quelling of the naysayers because, you know, I've, I've had, I, I know that the trolls that go after me are paid. I can prove it. And I know why, because one of them in particular has been blackmailed and I, she was raped by one of my family members and didn't report it. And then she got to work with his sister at Channel 9. And now she does this for a living. So um, for me, it would be the particular perpetrators that I have. There's a handful of them that I want them investigated because they're still alive. And I know one of them in particular is still perpetrating. And one's funding the troll I mentioned before. Um, so I want them investigated. That would be that would be justice for me. I mean, how how, how do you know someone's still involved in perpetrating this? And, it, and if, if you know, why why won't the police take an interest? And I suppose that's the most frustrating part for you. And, and yeah. for me, just 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 hearing your your testimony. He's very well protected. He used to train police dogs, uh, evil piece of work. Uh, he had a, apparently had a massive fine. I didn't see the article myself, but he had a $500,000 fine for unclassifiable porn, but he's still untouchable. What does and unclassifiable like, porn mean? You know what? I'm not sure I want to know, Rachel. You you can keep <laughs> that one. Uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah right yeah yeah okay yeah. okay so i mean the, I, I mean it sounds to well, me I that know it, he's still abusing because our parents come forward to tell me about their child being abused by him so that's that's why i know he's still he's still abusing that child was the same age as me when he was abusing me so just just wow. to put that 
So, I mean, you've already been through a lot more than anyone will ever understand. And you're also putting yourself out here now talking about it publicly. And as you said, you're, you're of the firm belief people who speak up about this meet a, a tragic demise. Are you not, con I mean, why are you still free to be able to speak openly about this without any sort of intervention? Is it a case of that you've become so public profile now? Maybe it's not, it's not worth the risk. I think that must be the case. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you fear for your safety at the, uh, as a result of all this? Oh, uh, you you create what you attract. So no, I don't. All right, Rachel. Well, I mean, I've I've really I'd, I'd like to say and it sounds weird to say I've enjoyed speaking to you given the subject matter, but I, I absolutely <laughs> have. And uh, you know, I, I really respect you speaking up uh, publicly about something that's obviously you know deeply disturbing to you, and it's a very personal thing as well. So thank you for that. Um, I mean, maybe you could tell people as well if they're if they're interested in following this up and looking into it in more detail, where can they find your output and the, the, the sort of PDAs you've referenced before, PDF rather you've referenced, mm -hmm. and the videos, things like that. So I'll, I'll um, republish my PDF again on my Telegram channel. So that's t.me forward slash Rachel Vaughan, as it's spelt here. I'm also on YouTube, BitChute and Rumble, again, just with my name. So if you search me up, you should be able to find me there. Excellent. Are you on the uh, the devil that is Twitter at all? Do you, do you partake? No. no, very wise. You're obviously much smarter <laughs> than I am. All right, Rachel. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it, has been, it genuinely has been lovely to speak to you and uh, enjoy thank the rest you. of your morning. You too. Thank you. Take care. Hey, Bob, how's it going, man? Pretty good, Sean. I see we have the same barber. We certainly do, don't we? Right. <laughs> We've got this lunar, lunar chrome dome. Oh, there you go. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> so, so, huge thank you for spending time with us today. Could you tell the viewers a little bit about you and how you came to study this subject of the, the moon landing? Uh, sure. You know, my father was in the Air Force. I was just four years old at the time they claimed to have walked on the moon asleep in bed. And I got from him a few days later a VIP package of color prints from the alleged trip to the moon that I put up on my bedroom wall and had them there for 10 years in a row before I questioned them. So imagine every day for 10 years, what would that be, 3,650 times, seeing about 20 images of allegedly people standing on the moon and thinking it's the most glorious thing of all time. And then when I'm 14 years old, I see an interview. He was one of the first guests on Oprah, and his name was William Casey. He had very high security clearance at NASA because he would edit the memos between Von Braun, the rocket designer, and the Pentagon to correct their grammar and make them look a little more educated than they really were. And he had to have high security clearance, and he read all these classified memos, including one from Von Braun to the Pentagon, warning them that the odds of going to the moon on the first attempt with one millionth computing power of a modern cell phone was probably a one in 10,000 chance, which is virtually guaranteeing killing the crew on live international television. Wow. And in order to guarantee the successful mission during the Vietnam War protests, they faked it. And so I'm, I, it caught me as an open-minded 14-year-old, thank goodness. I'm like, oh, you know, never thought about that. So then I look at the pictures with new eyes. And sure enough, you know, in the original pictures, if you can find a book from the library and borrow it, <laughs> you know, or, or find collector's editions on eBay, the original picture showed the lunar soil as a caramel brown, which is what it actually is if you're there. 
they know this from unmanned probes. And you'll see the Chinese probes today, which I believe are genuine, have a caramel brown surface. And then in the photographs, the fake projected backdrops were grayish blue. And you could pretty easily see a straight line going across horizontally. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the fake backdrop right there. And as a filmmaker, which I would later become, they're standing incredibly close to the fake backdrops, closer than I would put them if I were directing it. And so later, NASA put a blue filter on it and made the soil and the background the same color so it doesn't show up as much. And that's what you see online today. So that kind of planted a seed in my mind, Sean. It's like, hmm, I want to wonder about that. Well, as it would have it, 10 years go by, I'd become a filmmaker. Remember, a filmmaker's job is to make fake scenes look real, right? So that's how I could tell that these things were shot in electrical lighting. In fact, you could prove the moon landing fraud with a single picture of a shadow of an astronaut going at 12 o'clock and a rock five feet away, the shadow's at nine o'clock. A 90 degree difference from five feet apart, just go out in a parking lot or your front yard on noon on a cloudless day with you and a friend five feet apart, and you'll see sunlight is always parallel no matter which way you go. So if they're intersecting at 90 degrees, that's electrical light, which means they're on the moon because it can't be duplicated scientifically in sunlight. So you can prove it's fake by one picture. So I was editing one day for the client who produced the TV show I had seen as a 14-year-old 10 years earlier. He put me in touch with William Casey, who said, hey, you're a filmmaker. You should do a film about the fake moon landing. And I thought, well, let me think about this. So I literally took off for six months, paid myself a salary, started investigating it, found out that two of the three astronauts on the you know famous mission refused to ever give an interview about it. That's kind of strange. Found out the administrator of NASA resigned days before the first mission. Kind of strange when you want to be part of this great thing. And the Soviets had launched everything first, the first animal, satellite, orbit, spacewalk, crew of three, and they never went to the moon. And then you had, of course, Tricky Dick Nixon at the helm, and of course, the photographic anomalies, being able to see a fake background, shadows intersecting. And I'm like, you know, maybe they really did fake it. And I kind of, John, I have this, uh, you could say, uh, relentless personality. I, I, I don't like to lose. I, I don't like giving up on a goal. If there's a will, there's a way. That's my motto. <laughs> and knowing that about myself and knowing that I like puzzles, I used to draw mazes as a child. Uh, I said, if anyone could figure this out, it would be me. And then I realized if they did not go, and I start overturning these rocks, that could be hazardous to my health. So I actually turned down the project. I said, I wanna have a wife and family someday. No, thank you. About five years go by, another client challenges me to read the Bible. Now, I wasn't a Christian, but I'm like, oh, well, I guess so. And it didn't exactly turn me into a Christian. I was still, you know, being a pretty worldly playboy. However, it did convince me that there is right and wrong and good versus evil and basically truth versus lies. And I realized that if they faked it, that's more profound historically than if they had actually gone. Do you see that? If they faked the greatest accomplishment of mankind and murdered people to keep it a secret and embezzled $200 billion and held ticker tape parades for these guys, gave them medals of honor for lying, that's more significant than if they had actually gone. And I said, look, I'm going to die anyway. 
this is a just cause. It's worth risking my life for. So I changed my mind. A few days later, as serendipity would have it, I meet a multimillionaire who designs rockets for NASA who knows that it's fake. He said, Bart, I'm going to give you a million dollars to produce these films to prove the moon landing is fake. So three and a half years into the seven-year project that suggests maybe the moon landings were faked, we find classified footage of fake photography of them faking being halfway to the moon right in front of your eyes. Multiple takes of a one-foot model with a third track of the audio of the CIA telling them how to create a fake radio delay to make it appear they're further away from the Earth. And here we are 50 years later, and the Artemis project can only send mannequins to orbit the moon, but somehow... 50 years ago with one million computing power cell phone, they were playing golf on the moon. You know, you, so that's another way you could prove it. First, the photograph proves it. It cannot be duplicated in sunlight, which means it's electrical light, which means they're on Earth. Secondly, it's never happened in the history of the world that technology was greater in the past than in the future, because today NASA can only send astronauts 250 miles into space. So they went a thousand times farther 50 years ago. Well, that means it was greater technology in the past and in the future, but that's a scientific and historical impossibility. So that proves it. Then we have the classified footage that I talked about. That's three proofs. And then as I'm about to edit my book, which took 15 years to write, two years to edit, it's at Sibrel, my last name, S-I-B-R-E-L.com. You can get it in audio. I read it, Kindle or print. I'm put in touch with a gentleman, and this is new information I'm about to say. I did not publish what I'm about to say in my book because the man's relative was still alive, dying of cancer, and he didn't want to deal with the publicity. The gentleman's name was Cyrus Eugene Akers. He was chief of security at Cannon Air Force Base in 1968. He stood beside President Johnson while they filmed the fake moon landing June 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1968. President Johnson gave him a list of 15 people who were allowed in the visitor's door to observe. He gave that list to me. And I'm about to tell you something I've also not put in the book. The real deathbed confession. Cyrus Eugene Akers was dying, and he had done some things that he regretted. He believed in God. And it is suggested in the Bible, if you simply confess your sin and make a commitment not to do it again, God will forgive you. And he wanted to not go to hell, right? And so he said, really, what's the more important confession? He murdered a coworker who was going to become a whistleblower and tell what he had witnessed and go to a reporter. I don't know whether he was ordered to kill him or did it as on his initiative as the chief MP on the base, but he did it. He murdered somebody to keep it a secret. That was really what he wanted to get off his chest. He said, the reason why I killed them was the fake moon landing. And then he kind of defended it. They must have had a really good reason why they were doing it. Well, I don't know about that one. So all this is in my new book, Moon Man, the true story of a filmmaker on the CIA hit list. And the reason why it's called that is because after we produced a funny thing happened on the way to the moon, which you can see for free at sabrell.com. In fact, the book is interactive with 16 video links. I write a chapter and I say, look, I'm about to talk about the film. Watch link one, watch the film first. 
then you know and then i show another clip of nasa admitting they can't leave earth orbit and so forth and basically uh, after the first film i guess from maybe childhood courtroom dramas i'd seen on tv i thought why don't we just track down these guys we got a millionaire hire a bunch of private detectives to track down these guys put a bible in front of them and see if they'll take an oath that they walked on the moon it was during that occasion that i got punched by buzz aldrin another astronaut threatened to uh, kick uh, shoot me one threatened to hit me one literally kicked me from behind because i showed him the classified footage on the tape of them faking being halfway to the moon the guy turns beet red starts cursing get out of my house literally kicks me from behind so in the commotion john i left the wireless microphone on the guy and in the commotion you know my camera guy's freaking out he forgets to hit stop recording so while the astronaut and his son are in their house with the doors closed and the cameras in the back seat of the rental car and the driveway in front of the house we're recording the private conversations of the astronaut and his son in his house and three months after the fact when the secretary of the film is doing the transcript she calls me up panic bark bark you know what they're talking about in their house you know when you left the the mic on and the camera recorder like i don't know what they're talking about calling the cia to have you assassinated and i'm like oh that's funny says no bark they're talking about calling the cia to have you assassinated i'm like yeah that's funny says, bark. they're talking about calling the cia to have you assassinated now if they really went to the moon and I'm some silly person who thinks it was done in a TV studio. Why would the CIA care? Unless, like I showed him, I had proof that they didn't go. Well, a couple of good guys in the government told me to call two people on that list while I was editing my book. And shortly thereafter, my source's house was broken into. And all the records of this guy being in the Air Force that they could find were confiscated. And two days after that, this is less than two years ago, Two government employees show up and face-to-face threaten to kill him and his family if he ever spoke to me again. Now, why wow. would that be necessary if they really went to the moon, right? Wow. Thank you for letting me do my essay. You're very patient, Sean. Yeah, on this channel, we don't cut long stories short. I just like to sit here and listen <laughs> and not say anything. We've got a few people, and I was asked to ask you this before the interview, are asking about Stanley Kubrick's role in the, you know, in faking the video. There's various theories. Do, do you uh, subscribe to any of well, that? Well, you're in the UK, and that's where he lived and where he was from. And so, yeah, I mean, you just kind of have to think, what would I do if I were them? Okay, they're faking the moon landing, so they have to have fake pictures. If if they can't convince people through the photography or TV images that it's fake, they're sunk. So they have two choices. They could hire the general of the media department of the Pentagon and get good security and amateur results. Or they could hire the best filmmaker on the planet, get the short-term benefit of good-looking pictures, and worry about security later. That had to be the choice that they made. And Stanley Kubrick, in 1968, when it was being filmed at Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico, happened to be shooting a film about going to the moon <laughs> you know <laughs> 2001 a space odyssey and there are pictures of him why stanley kubrick at nasa strolling around with you know the flight director and the you know the ceo of nasa why would he be there and then in his uh, film the shining and there's a couple of documentaries about this there is apparently multiple clues about the moon landing fraud now some of them 
are a bit overly poetic. But if a third of them are true, you know, then then it's true. And one in particular, the little, you know, red rum boy, he stands up and he's got a hand knit shirt that says Apollo 11 right on it. And I think, you know, he did it. That's who I would have picked. I think 2001 is probably still the best science fiction film ever made. And that was done with 1968 technology. And it's still the most realistic. The guy was a genius. And then people don't remember Apollo 12. Six months later, they accidentally pointed the TV camera into the sun. So there were no pictures. Then Apollo 13 on April 13th at 1313 military time had an accident, which was only contrived because after they went to the moon the second time, people were complaining reruns of I Love Lucy were being interrupted. So they'd added that for drama. What that means is they had two years between the time that Kubrick shot the first one to get their act together and to figure out how to do it for Apollo 14. And I think uh, the some of the later missions, 14 through 17, were likely filmed in England. Uh, there's a big dirigible hangar not too far from London where it's believed, and there's photographic evidence to support it, that that's where some of the later missions were because they decided to have larger landscapes and they needed a larger space than Cannon Air Force Base could provide. My dad being in the Air Force, I'd never heard of Cannon Air Force Base. I looked it up. It's tiny, which is great because there's fewer eyewitnesses. And then every branch of the military has their CIA type department, special ops. Well, out of the whole world, guess where the headquarters of the special ops for the United States Air Force is? Cannon Air Force Base. Mm. And then I had to pull out my own interview of William Casey from the archives. I'm like, didn't he say something about the Air Force? And I have him saying the whole thing, the whole faking of the moon landing was supervised by General Sam Phillips of the United States Air Force. And then one of the people on this list, I had heard of most of them, you know, like Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, Von Braun, Van Allen. There was one guy on there I hadn't heard of, or some of them, Robert Emmenager, which was like a science fiction consultant. And I got an email from someone saying in one of his autobiographies, he said he was at Cannon Air Force Base in 1968 for a classified reason. So then you get to, well, what, what does this mean? We, we have a government that claims to be a light on a hill to the world. And every time someone is democratically elected, they don't like, they send in the CIA to kill them. They boast about it in the New York Times, which is completely illegal. And no one does anything about it. You have William Benny, who worked for the NSA for 30 years, says, oh, by the way, we spy on the private cell phone conversations of Supreme Court justices so we can get sexual and financial dirt on them to blackmail them to vote the way we tell them. No one contradicts that that's a fact on a single investigation. <laughs> How can that be? The corrupt government, it just would blow your mind. And the moon landing fraud is just the crowning achievement of their complete arrogance and disregard for the people they care. And then there were new revelations in the book that I did not put in the film because some of the people were still alive and asked that I do it after they died. The second to the last chapter in Moon Man, which is at sabrell.com, is called NASA's Greatest Fear. The crew that was going to be the crew to walk on the moon first died in an accident, January 27th, 1967. 
according to the dead man's widow, who I interviewed for four hours, and according to the dead man's son, who I interviewed for three hours. He was murdered by the CIA. He came home the day before, said Han for the first time ever. The CIA is all over the launch pad. I wonder why. Next day, the guy's dead. They go to his house. They take his papers that he's you know, sending to Congress and the Senate about how they're 10 years away from going to the moon. They confiscate him before they even tell his widow that he's dead. That's their accusation, not mine. I'm just passing it on. And I figure they know. I mean, if Bobby Kennedy Jr. says his uncle was killed by the CIA, I would think he's the expert on the fact, right? And if the dead man's wife and son, who's a 747 pilot, says his man, his father and husband, who was going to be the first man to walk on the moon, was murdered because he wouldn't cooperate, I believe him. And so it'd be one thing, Sean, if they faked the moon landing and killed nobody. Then it's kind of you kind of, in a way, respect their cleverness. Hey, they did a good counterfeit. They sold the fake Picasso to some sucker. Hey, good job. But that it's worse than that. Not only did they take our hard-earned money, a third of our labor or more, to deceive us, they used our money, our labor, to murder our fellow citizens who were trying to expose their crimes because we paid the salary of those CIA agents who killed their own people. We paid for the hardware that they used to contrive that accident. You see that? And, and these people are still running the show because until the moon landing fraud comes out, those people and their offspring are still running the show. So that's why Orwell said, whoever controls the past, the moon landing to real when they're not, those same criminals run the future. And what we have here is a cartel of gangsters running the United States of America. It makes no difference whether it's red and blue. Don't be suckered into that, fighting each other so we don't go after them. Just ask Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders, right? It didn't. They won't let either of them go to the top, right? So something's going on and it doesn't really matter who you vote for because Congress and the Senate, did they vote on whether to fake the moon landing? No, they weren't even asked. So your elected officials, your voting does no good whatsoever. We had 90% of Americans who wanted GMO labeling on a bottle of ketchup. Please tell me if I'm about to swallow a GMO. Have 90% of Americans agreed on anything since Pearl Harbor? No. <laughs> And yet 90%, a democracy, the majority rules, which means 51% rules. So you have 90% wanting GMO labeling. The president says, no, I'm going to do what the corporations tell me to do. All right. What is the motivation for faking the moon landing? Well, you know, the, the first guy in the military told me it's all about money. It came out that Halliburton, you know, was charging $40 for a 50 cent ice cube tray during the Iraq war. And that's what Eisenhower warned us about in his last day in office. He was afraid to say it during the eight years of his presidency. How about that? Right? I'm warning you, this, this military industrial complex, the profiteers off of war, they're running the show. He was afraid to say it. Kennedy said it, look what happened to him. So money, you know, I wouldn't think that money would be the number one reason. I thought it was pride because Kennedy said we'll go before the end of the decade and they couldn't do it. So they didn't want to eat humble pie, but people in the know who know more than me say it's money first. Now, NASA has never kept a schedule 
not a single time. Just the Hubble telescope to go into Earth orbit, one little piece of equipment half the size of a car, 10 years behind schedule. In 2014, they said they're going to have people orbiting the moon in 2018, and they still haven't done that. What is that, eight years later? They only have mannequins orbiting the moon and that eight years behind schedule. But for some reason, the most complicated space endeavor of all time was ahead of schedule. I mean, imagine that. So that pride had to be in there somewhere. And it was propaganda. Nixon, who was president at the time, said the number one threat to America is not Russia. It's not China. It's Americans who are protesting the federal government because of the Vietnam War. So why not give them something to cheer about? In the book, I mentioned the code name that apparently President Johnson personally came up with for the endeavor of faking the moon landing. He called the project Slam Dunk, meaning if you fake it, you can guarantee it'll be successful. <laughs> pretty, pretty true, right? And so when people were complaining, Americans are dying in the war, then they could give them this, you know, bone. Look at this, something to cheer about, something to wave your flag at. And by the way, Robert McNamara said on his deathbed, he was defense secretary during the Vietnam War. Now, before December 7th, 1941, 90% of Americans were against entering World War II, 90%. Then Pearl Harbor happens and 90% are for it, right? <laughs> and it was kind of that way when the war in Vietnam was going on, that which was going on since the late 50s, 90% of Americans said, let's just not get involved. You know what I mean? We remember World War II, we don't want to do this again, okay? Let them solve their own problems. Well, so they're like, well, how can we get the U.S.? What can we need a Pearl Harbor event. Well, it was called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where allegedly a North Vietnamese ship attacked, attacked an American ship. Well, Robert McNamara on his deathbed said, oh, by the way, we just made that up. The CIA just made that up. It never happened. That led to the death of 3 million people, including 58,220 Americans. So if they're willing to contrive something that leads to the death of 3 million people, including 58,000 of their own citizens, I think they're willing to fake an image on television, right? And because it's a positive conspiracy, you know, it's whoever shot JFK, he's dead. Whoever did 9-11, those people are dead. But this is a lie that's positive. And telling people the truth is like taking candy away from a baby. I talked to a professor. I showed him, I mean, them faking the moon landing right in front of your eyes. Even my critics said, yes, they're faking it, but they're just rehearsing. I'm like, well, why not rehearse with the real earth out the window? Why do you need a model of it? Right? You know, and then why would you bring the extra weight? So that doesn't fly anyway. And so it's like, this professor saw that, he saw the intersecting shadows, knows of the confession. He says, there's nothing you could say that would make me deny the glorious moon landings. And I said, well, what about this? What if you turned on your TV and Buzz Aldrin was holding a live press conference, tearfully confessing, yes, he faked it. It was shot at Cannon Air Force Base, and I'm so sorry. The professor of this university said, I still think he walked on the moon. You know, <laughs> so the problem is, or you could, the problem for the American government is, is even though the faking of the moon landing killed fewer people than even the Kennedy assassination witness list, certainly less than 9-11 and the fake Vietnam War, 
it's the one fraud if exposed would enrage people the most because they waved their flag, they got down on their knees and prayed, and they cheered, and it's in the encyclopedia and on coins, you know? That's why they're very afraid that the moon landing fraud will come out. It'll be the finger out of the dike for everything else because it's kind of odd that a few top podcasts won't talk about it. Alex Jones, Joe Rogan won't talk about it. Joe Rogan called me up, said, I believe uh, the moon landings are fake. What can I do to help? And now the guy's afraid to talk about it on his show. It's kind of <laughs> odd. Uh, prove me wrong. You know, especially Ooh. with the deathbed confession, the guy who was there and uh, backed up by his son, backed up by other people who were on the list that President Johnson gave. You know, we can verify all of this. And why is this not news? Right. I, it came out, I don't know, 10 years ago, some curator in the Netherlands who Neil Armstrong allegedly picked up a particular rock just for the prime minister of the Netherlands, put it in his pocket, brought it to the Netherlands six weeks later and said, here's the rock. They put it in glass. Well, the curator watched a funny thing happen on the way to the moon. And he's like, I wonder. So late at night, he opened it up and put it under a microscope. And it's a piece of petrified wood. You know, because it looks out of this world, right? So they did a little minor news story. Moon rock proves to be a fake, and that's it. Well, if the moon rocks are fake, what about the moon mission? I mean, you have Kelly Smith from NASA saying on a video that's on the Internet, the technology necessary to protect an astronaut from radiation on a trip to the moon has yet to be invented. So how did they do it in 1969? <laughs> you know, and that's one of the clips at sabral.com that you can see for free. So I'll, again, you're doing the best job ever of letting me ramble on. <laughs> I try to hold my passion, but it just infuriates me that this uh, is the world we live in and the government we have. And it's really sad. Have the, Russians, have the Russians accused the Americans of faking it? They did originally. Uh, the, the day that it happened, the ambassador, Russian ambassador to the United States said it was fake. And then they did some, you know, deal. Uh, I know somebody who personally works at the Chinese space agency. And he said they have an agreement with NASA. They won't say that it's real because that would be dishonorable to them. But they won't also say that it's fake in exchange for space technology. So this idea that China is our enemy while we're sending them technology to fly into space, which is the most technologically advanced thing there is, you know, that's all a lie. We do more business with China than anybody else. They're not our enemy. They're our competitor. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to win in a competition. They have to divert our attention. All of our founding fathers who took an oath and everyone in the military and every police officer in America takes an oath to obey the Constitution, not the president and to protect America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So just like a magician, they say, you know, they put their hand over here while they're doing something behind their back. They keep saying the boogeyman is in China, the boogeyman is in Russia, the boogeyman is in Iran, when they're the boogeyman. You know what I mean? When you have to ask permission to open your business, permission to go to church, permission to go to the beach, you're a slave, you know? They, they say we have the best health care in the world and 70% of the population is on prescription medicine. 
So that means 70% of the population is sick. That's the worst healthcare in the world. They say we're the land of the free, we're the land of the slaves. And people don't even know it. They're, they're committing slavery right out in the open by tricking the slaves into thinking they're free and we're not free at all. You had a few questions coming from the viewers then. So Fred wants to know whether you've heard of the Coke tin story. Uh, the alleged Coke bottle, you know, rolling across the TV screen. That could be true. Uh, there are many people who said they saw it. Uh, Bill Casey believes that I got this classified footage intentionally from a whistleblower. I did have a couple of contacts there at NASA. One was a was an executive who told me personally that it was fake. So maybe he or somebody, you know, sent me that. Uh, maybe they threw that across the Coke bottle during a live show. Uh, I remember somebody telling me, and uh, they were in the military, and they were watching the, quote, last mission to the moon live on TV. The rocket goes up, meaning they're leaving the moon, and then there's a shadow of a person walking around, you know, and then they cut it out, and Walter Cronkite says, oh, what a great thing. You know, he tries to cover for her. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it is what it is. And here's another proof, really. I mean, if you use deductive reasoning, they intentionally destroyed all the technology they used to go to the moon, which in today's dollars cost $200 billion. One of the clips for free at Sibrel.com is Don Pettit, NASA astronaut, saying they intentionally destroyed the technology they used to go to the moon. Now, if there was ever a technology you were intentionally destroying, it would have to be the atomic bomb after they used it in World War II. But they didn't destroy it, did they? And only 10 years later, atomic bombs were 1,000 times more powerful. Technology increases exponentially. So if they could go to the moon on the first attempt with one millionth the computing power of a cell phone, we would have been on Mars 10 years later. We'd be in another solar system by now, and there'd be bases all over the moon, which there aren't any, you see. So I think the photography actually got worse. There are more intersecting shadows in the, quote, last mission than in the first, because once people accepted they were on the moon, they're just, you know, hypnotized, and it doesn't really matter. And I guess they got a kick out of doing their little jokes. Same thing as Kubrick got a little kick. Another little Kubrick clue. His last film is called Eyes Wide Shut. The most famous picture is of Buzz Aldrin, you know, bending his arm at 90 degrees, allegedly standing on the moon. The soil is brown. The background is blue. Big clue there. Uh, there's a shadow even of the wall, a secondary shadow of the wall in front of him, if you can, if you can see that in his visor. And then the, the spacesuits, you know, from space walking shuttle astronauts, have hinges in the elbows because you can't bend your arm in a pressurized suit. So how was he able to bend his arm? And then the wrinkles all in the spacesuit. Well, how many wrinkles are in a balloon? The thing isn't even pressurized. So, you know, for 10 years, I looked right at all these clues and just didn't see them. My eyes were wide shut. Well, Cooper consisted contractually with Warner Brothers that that film, his last film, and he died before it opened. He had his deathbed wish. He said, I insist it open on this particular day. And if you don't agree, I won't sign the contract. That is July 16th, 1999, the 30th anniversary of the trip to the moon. 
right? Next, que- next question is, do, what do you think of Crow 777? I'm just going to close this door. Have you heard of Crow 777? It seems that's like a YouTube identity name or something, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. if you've not heard of him, we've got another question from Rebecca. Does Bart know anything more general about the collusion between the film industry and the military-industrial complex? Oh, the definite collusion. Uh, I think it started in World War II for you know propaganda purposes. And there, I don't think in and of itself there's anything wrong if the war is a just cause to, you know, talk positively about it to compensate for discouragement. When you cross the line and do outright lying, that's illegal, according to a Truman Act that he signed in 1947. He said, you know, the war's over. We can't use the CIA or, or any Department of America to lie to the people that is morally wrong. So that's a law. And then there was the quiz show scandal in 1958 where they gave the guy the answers in advance and yet time magazine had on their cover the smartest man in america i'd be the smartest man in america too if i had the answers in advance (laughs) so either time magazine colluded which i don't think they did or they were just deceived you see if you deceive the media then you deceive the world and everyone just assumed the government was telling the truth about the moon landing fraud so they passed a law they said it's not only can you not do propaganda, you cannot use television specifically to state a falsehood. So the federal government broke that law, too. Of course, they murdered their own people. The Declaration of Independence, which precedes the Constitution, says any time a government becomes destructive of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they should be altered or abolished. So we have the right to disengage the federal government. It's there in writing by our founding fathers, and they murdered Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee of Apollo 1, among dozens and thousands of other people over the years, which is destroying their right to life, isn't it? Our own government murdered their own people to cover up their crimes, and these people are still in power today. Anyone care? You know, what are we going to do about it? People are hypnotized, aren't they, by the media and the mainstream? All right, so with these with your films, then a funny thing happened on the way to the moon. Astronauts gone wild. Your book, Moon Man: The True Story of Filmmaker on the CIA Hit List. Do you think any of this stuff has put your life at risk? Have you had threats, Bart? Well, one of the big things that I disclose in the book that I've never talked about publicly. Basically, I've done a lot of interviews like this, and I, it's already a difficult pill to swallow that they lied about such a thing. It's true. So that's the primary goal in the past is just to, you know, help people see this uh, unfortunate thing. I, I have a quote at the end of each chapter, and there's a quote from Men in Black 3. The bitterest truth is better than the sweetest lie. And other things happened uh, during the production of this film, including literally being kidnapped and drugged by the CIA when I was trying to get this classified footage to a colleague at CNN in Atlanta. I was literally surrounded by the police who were probably on the payroll of the CIA. Uh, They kidnapped me illegally, uh, not in front of everybody, but in a back alley behind CNN where I was trying to get the tape in the back door. They put something around my wrist that they referred to as the thing. You got the thing, oh, here's the thing. And they all had gloves on when they handled it. And of course, that's where all my veins are. It was absorbed 
and I was like on some big LSD trip. And then they put me in a dark van, uh, had some guy in there speaking in tongues or something to confuse me. I mean, it was pitch black, which takes a little bit of effort. Throwing up, the drug is so severe. They take me out. I'm in bright light. They have a clipboard. Where's the original tape? And where's this and that? And I tell them everything they wanted to know. I mean, you don't have to waterboard anybody unless you're vindictive. You give them a bribe of a billion dollars, you know, and Osama bin Laden's mom will turn in one son to take care of the other nine. And you got true serum. And let me tell you, it works. I was in La La Land. I thought they were the good guys trying to help me. I escaped their custody. I make my way back to Nashville. How did you escape? Well, that's how much time you got. (laughs) You know, basically, there's a chapter that's called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to CNN. And I go into explicit detail of everything that happened and just go to sabrell.com, get the book, and you read about it. So jumping toward the end, I come back to Nashville and I say, I got him. I got truth serum in me. (laughs) So I pee in a cup. And without communicating over the phone or anything, I give it to a friend and I ask him to take it to a lab in his name, not mine. And I'm like, I'm going to prove I was drugged with a drug that only the CIA would have access to. A few days later, he, he and I meet and he says, well, there was a problem at the lab. And I said, well, what problem? He said, well, funny thing, uh, they had a break in over the weekend. And I said, yes. Yeah, so what? He said, well, funny thing. The only thing stolen was your urine sample. <laughs> you know, so the people that run the lab, you know, see that they were broken into, you know, and, and you know, nothing stolen except my urine sample. So somehow, you know, they used a laser microphone or something and they, you know, I couldn't out with them. Uh, you know how many CIA agents it takes to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> Ten of them probably. <laughs> well, uh, I could tell you, but then I have to kill you. <laughs> so all that's in my book which i normally didn't mention in interviews because it's like i'm already telling them this x-file thing we didn't go to the moon which is true and it's like uh, let's stay on topic it'll sound all the more crazy but now i want to move on to making feature films and that's my dream and i thought well let me just for the historic record tell tell what happened uh there are many encounters with astronauts that are not recorded in astronauts gone wild some of them are private off camera and two of them made it clear to me actually three uh that they didn't go to the moon and good luck you know because you're it's an uphill battle trying trying to convince these people uh you know one of them told me he does believe in god and that's why he uh didn't swear on the bible you know And if one man had walked on the moon and nobody else, maybe they would have confessed it by now. The problem is they'd be kind of confessing for everybody against the other person's will. Uh, And they would have the weight, theoretically, of bringing down America. I showed the classified footage to a news director at NBC. Okay, NBC News. I worked at NBC News for two years. And I showed the classified footage to the news director. He fell back in his chair white put his hand over his mouth and said oh my gosh they really didn't go to the moon i said yeah you know when are we going to air it he said i can't do that that'll cause a civil war i will not be responsible for causing a civil war 10 years go by we have another new news director at nbc they say we're going to air this they paid me for it you know interviewed me 
And a few days beforehand, they got a call from the federal government saying, do not, if you want to keep your license, do not air this. Same thing happened in your country in the BBC. The BBC bought the rights to a funny thing happened on the way to the moon. They were going to have a surprise broadcast, like, you know, you know, to get even more publicity. Three days beforehand, they got a call from the federal government saying, don't broadcast that footage. Don't do it. So there you have it, you know. Uh, <laughs> what can you do? That's the way the world works, right? Supreme wow. Court justices are being openly blackmailed. No one contradicts it. No one says it's not true. They just don't do anything about it. And yet when someone leaks information about the Democratic Party giving more votes to Clinton when, you know, Sanders got twice as many votes, they go after the guy who leaked the information. You know, it's, We've got a question so, from Fred. He wants to know whether you've heard the theories that the moon is fake or the moon may be a spaceship. <laughs> well, I have a pretty vivid imagination and, and God gave that to everybody. Uh, Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. The guy's not infallible. <laughs> He's wrong. Knowledge is more important than imagination. You can imagine how to enter eternal life, but it'd be better to know, wouldn't it? So I don't think that it could be true. You know, I'm open minded, uh, you know, prove it to me. Uh, I've looked at flat earth. I don't think that's true. Uh, and even if it were true, the issue isn't about the shape of the earth. It never says in the Bible you have to pass a geography quiz to enter heaven. Uh, the issue is the corruption in world governments The the earth could be a triangle. And it's still about the, the faking of the moon landings because the government is corrupt. The government has always been corrupt. I mean, ever since Nimrod, right? You have, uh, what is it, Pak in Vietnam and Stalin and Hitler. Altogether, they killed about 50 million people because they didn't like them. And that was less than 100 years ago. Homicidal maniacs have always run the world since Nimrod. So they told the Nazis, told the Jews, it's a good thing we're rounding you up. It's a good thing we're quarantining you. It's a, you're going to have jobs and food and let come on into the showers and get cleaned up. They might be doing something like that right now, right? Getting rid of the inferior people. You ever think about that? I saw a list of Hitler's useless eaters, you know, the elderly, the obese, uh, the heart conditions and phase one of a particular medicine and Hitler's use of cedars were identical. What a coincidence, you know? So if the former vice president of such a company making that medicine says what's going on is a lie and that particular medicine is deadly, that's his opinion, not mine. <laughs> I'm just passing it on, you know? Oh, I don't know what you think about that, but, but it is what it is. You know, the moon landings are fake and I, I wish they, I wish they weren't. I cried when I popped in that tape, John, and I saw, you know, them faking with the one foot model of the earth. I just wept. I'm like, boy, this is, this is sad. This is our world and this is our country. It's so sad. You know, you're, you're it, me it means something. It means something spiritually that mankind's greatest accomplishment, their greatest boast, putting a man on the moon, complete lie. That, that tells us something. You're you know? such a fantastic and a passionate speaker, Bart, and we really appreciate you spending time with us today then. Do you want to just tell the viewers finally where they can find you on the socials and, and get your books? Yeah, everything's at Sabrell, S as in Sam, I, B as in boy, R-E-L, Sabrell.com. It's all there. 
huge thank you for coming on. I'd love to see you again sometime. Maybe we could have someone come on who could debate the other side, but you've just blown me away with all your knowledge. So I really appreciate you spending time. Thank you, Bart. Sure, Sean. You take care. Take care, my friend. Cheers. Bye. What a lovely individual. And he laid it down. So well researched. Absolutely fascinating guest there to finish with. Thank you, Ash, who's already gone bed in Asia. He's up all night organizing these shows every week. Huge thank you to all the Patreons. Thank you for your questions. You always help shape what we're doing. Thanks to Stephen Knight as well. Please support Stephen Knight's work. Tomorrow night we've got um, Paul Simmons, 22 years in UK prison on YouTube at 6 p.m. And then we've got Joey Torres. I think we've got six hours of Joey Torres going out on Sunday. So Ray J, get ready for that one. <laughs> All right, much love and respect wherever you are in the world. Thank you, Patreons. We will see you next time on Atwood Unleashed 90. Yes. And we may be having the return of Ryan Dawson very soon.